Hi everybody, uh, welcome to Stress Free Lounge. I'm your host Bill Whittle. I hope um, get a little sound check from the audience here. I have a dream that one day all of this stuff will be um, locked in. I hope the sound levels are a little better. Hi everybody, good to see everyone. Um, so uh, just uh, go over a couple things uh, briefly that um, that I went over on Stratosphere Studio on Monday night because I know some people don't uh, watch all of that. Uh, we um, finished the uh, finished the um, uh, the the uh, Empire of Terror thing. So that's an enormous relief after four or five months. Focus a little a little soft. Come on now, um, and uh, it was just great to be done with that. And um, and also, uh, they did an amazing, just absolutely amazing job with it. Um, so I'm I'm just real happy to be done with that. And I know everybody else must be too, because it's just really taken me away. Uh, from everything, and um, and I'm glad to be back. I've got a lot of things to uh, work on, and um, and uh, and a lot of catching up to do. So um, so that's uh, real good. Uh, I'm going to make um, go into this in a much more detail on Monday. Um, yes, membership drive coming up. First, I have to have something to show. So um, I'm working on a firewall just to get back in the good graces of the people I've been um, a little short sheeting for the last several months, although I like to think um, that when you see the work, uh, it'll be worth it, because as I said on Monday night, I could not have done it just on just on what Daily Wire was paying me. It was a huge project, and, um, and my right angle this week, which has not been posted yet, is uh, called, uh, there was a post on um, Instapundit uh, a couple days ago uh, called the Russia that might have been they were referring to if he hadn't gone into Ukraine and we're not going to restart that uh, adventure but um, one of the things that was so in fact not so the, the by far by far the single most uh, emotional part of this four months five months working on this eight part series about the, the history of the Soviet terror state, because that's what it was, and that's what it is. Um, the hardest part of it was to see uh, two occasions where uh, Russia just got so close to coming into the family of nations, and uh, one of them I knew a, a bit about, the Kerensky one, but uh, until I started doing the research, I didn't know anything about uh, Pyotr Stolypin, who was um, who was Nicholas II's uh, it brought him in as interior minister and then um, made him uh, prime minister. And Stolypin took a look at um, perpetually underperforming Russian farms. And uh, the Alexander II, the Tsar Alexander II, Nicholas's grandfather, uh, freed the serfs in 1861 in excess of 9 million people. Uh, and he gave them all land, but they had communal farms and communal pastures, so you have the tragedy of the commons, and at the same time they owned, they, they had privately owned farmland. <laughs> I still can't believe this, 
but the farmland that they privately owned was um, a row. So you would have a long row on this communal farm, and that was your row. And you could, you know, plant it and plant whatever you want and tend it and harvest it and all the rest of it. And you might own another row, but the rows were not adjacent to each other. This is my row, and I might have another row a quarter of a mile over that way, and then maybe a third row two-tenths of a mile that way. And in order to get to my other rows, I have to step over other people's rows, and I have to bring all my stuff. And, and, and so these peasants for 100 years are at each other's throats, ready to kill each other because of this the, the uh, precise term is the land was not enclosed. So um, so Russia's hungry. Right? There's a big famine when Lenin was young and younger. And Lenin said, great, let's get people. Hopefully people will starve themselves to the point of cannibalism. Then we'll have a chance to take over. Nice guy. Uh, but in 1905, so this is 12 years before the Communist Revolution, 1906, uh, so 11 years. Uh, Nicholas II makes this guy Pyotr Stolypin. Here he is. He should be one of the most famous people in the world. Nobody's ever heard of him. So um, Lenin and the rest of the communists are in uh, cafes in Zurich and um, London and Paris and so on. And uh, and Lenin is reading Marx and more Marx, and they're arguing Marx, and it's all theoretical. It's all about some science fiction theory. And then um, 10 years, 11 years before the revolution, this guy uh, grew up on a on a, his family farm. He was in land management his whole life. He studied, are you ready for this? The guy who was in charge of, uh, they put in charge of the agrarian reforms actually studied agriculture in St. Petersburg. What a novel idea for the Russians. So he's the anti-Lenin, this guy. He's tall where Lenin was short. He's handsome where Lenin was ugly. He's immaculately dressed where Lenin was perpetually rumpled. But much, much more importantly, he's a practical man where Lenin was entirely theoretical. And unlike Lenin, this guy loved the, the, the peasants. He loved the land. He loved the people that worked the land. Pe the peasants were an embarrassment for, for Lenin. Um, Wow, thank you, Faith, for a $50 super chat, Bill. Thank you for being the wise man on the mound and, and for being a light to push back against the dark. Thank you, Faith. I really needed to hear that. That's very kind of you. And I think when you see this, you will, when you see this series, you, 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 you'll, you'll have the same reaction that everybody on the crew had, and that is, I just had no idea. Um, anyway, just real quick, back to Stolipin here. So um, Russia's perpetually hungry. This is just a, a thumbnail argument for you. This is a little hand grenade. Uh, when you see the series, you'll have a lot more background, but just for the sake of it. So when Russia's under serfs, serfs were slaves. There were probably 20, 30 million at some point. Uh, they were the property of the people uh, that owned the land. And since they were bordering the Caucasus Mountains or the Caucasus region, about as Caucasian as you could get. So there were 20, 30 million white slaves in Russia for centuries, which isn't often talked about. Um, so Alexander II flees, frees the slaves, the serfs, puts them on a communal farm. Russia is hungry. This guy comes along, looks at these communal farms where everybody owns their own row, and looks at it and says, this is insane. This is just madness. 
This is madness. No wonder we're tanking here. So Stolypin just a little more backstory because I like talking about this guy. He's a relatively new discovery. I've heard of him before. I didn't realize his importance. So Stolypin's made prime minister in 1906. In 1905, there was an aborted uprising, and this led to the Bloody Sunday Massacre where the uh, troops at the Winter Palace opened fire on uh, thousands of peasants who were just petitioning the Tsar. And, and they were carrying pictures of the Tsar, and they were singing, God save the Tsar. And the, uh, and the Russian uh, soldiers opened up on the crowd and killed hundreds and hundreds of people. And after that, the whole country caught fire, and the Russian people said, we don't have a czar anymore. It turns out Nicholas wasn't even in St. Petersburg at the time, but nevertheless. Uh, so the country's on fire in 1905-1906, and the Saratov Oblast, which was the previously the most rebellious region because it was the poorest and one of the furthest from central control, that oblast is the only oblast in all of Russian Empire, including the other countries like Ukraine and so on that would eventually become SSRs, the Soviet Socialist Republics. They're all on fire, and there's all these uprisings and rioting and murder and all the rest of it, but Saratov promise is actually calm and ordered, and it's because this guy would go out to these peasant meetings, dress like this, sit down and talk to people. He had just astonishing personal courage. Um, so, in 1906, Stolypin uh, launches something that became known as the Stolypin Agriculture, uh, sorry, the Stolypin Agrarian Reforms. So hold on to your hats here, kids. Stolypin took all of this communal land that these peasants were on with their common pastures, which means if you get up early and stay up late, you're grazing more than your fair share of land that doesn't have any shares. And, uh, and he privatizes the whole thing. He just basically says, no, this is nuts. We're going to enclose these areas. This will be your farm, and this will be your farm, and this will be your S-T-O-L-P-Y-N, Pyotr Stolypin. And not only did Stolypin give the peasants their own private property, this beggars the belief. He started agricultural schools. He started disseminating the latest agricultural information, and this part blew my mind. He convinces the czar, are you ready for, the, for this? He convinces the czar to set up a fund that would loan money to peasant farmers on their own private property so that they could buy uh, equipment, they could buy grain stock, they could buy more land if they were producing, they could hire a few people. He, he just went in and, and made sense out of all of it. And then, so that was 1906. By 1913, Russia is exporting more grain than Argentina, Canada, and the United States combined 30% more grain exports than the United States, Canada, and Argentina combined. That's the miracle of private property. Uh, but the czar doesn't like him because he's upsetting the, the apple cart and the uh, this brand new political movement called Socialists didn't like him because he's getting results and and it wasn't through um, socialism, it was through private property. So needless to say, there's a number of attempts to try to kill Pyotr Stolypin, uh, 10 of them, in fact. One of them takes place took place at a dacha, big country house, where they were having a meeting of various peasants and, and administrators to find out the most efficient way to keep this, this thing going. And uh, three socialist terrorists put a bomb in the place and blew a third of the building out. Uh, 
sleeping, just had a couple scratches. But those socialist terrorist heroes did manage to kill his 15-year-old daughter by blowing her legs off, uh, and 23 other innocent people too. So, um, so Stilipin among Stilipin said when he was asked about this whole thing about privatizing, they asked him, "What? Why are you doing this?" What's your motivation? He said that this is a bet on the sober and the hardworking. So, got serfs as slaves, Russia's a basket case. You've got communal farms, Russia's a basket case. You get Stilipin, now you're out producing the three largest grain producers in the world combined by 30%. Stilipin goes to see, uh, one of the other things Stilipin said was, um, bury me where they kill me. So he goes to... Um, goes to see an opera at the Kiev Opera House, and Tsar is there with his two eldest daughters, and at the end of the first act, a socialist walks up to him and shoots him twice, once in the shoulder and once in the chest, and he stands up, he takes his gloves off, he unbuttons his jacket, he motions to the Tsar and the two grand duchesses to stand back out of the line fire, down he goes, and he dies four days later. Then the country goes to hell, because... Nicholas II had a supernatural ability to do exactly the wrong thing. Then in February of 1917, the Tsar abdicates. Kerensky takes over. Kerensky, I've mentioned before, and I mentioned in the series, Kerensky's government, the day that they, the provisional government took effect, which is like a day or two after the Tsar abdicated, Kerensky's government wrote a proclamation largely written by Kerensky himself, and it said, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have complete freedom of speech, complete freedom of the press. We're going to have universal secret ballots for elections to the Constituent Assembly. We're going to do all of these things. Um, no, I'm not going to get in trouble with Daily Wire. I'm allowed to talk about politics. Thank you, though, Scott. Besides, this is just promotional material for one of the episodes, one of the eight. And um, and Kerensky has tremendous heart, and he's and he, but he's a he he's very theatrical. He would get so excited during his speeches that he would faint, and uh, and sometimes the fainting was actually real. He always managed to seem to faint at like the most dramatic moment. So he's a very flighty guy, very uh, theatrical guy. The the Okrana, the Tsar's secret police, codenamed him, gave him a code name, Speedy. So Speedy Kerensky is a guy with a good heart, but pathologically naive cannot see the threat that Lenin presents. The British are, are aware that Lenin has been ushered out of Switzerland, heading back to Petrograd, paid for by the German army that, that Russia's at war with. The Germans are paying Lenin and continue to pay him once he gets to Petrograd. And the British, are, British intelligence is aware that he's moving. He's on his way to Petrograd. And in order to get to Petrograd from Germany, he has to cross up in the Baltic and he has to land at this port. I forget the name of it at the moment. It was controlled by the British because the British were unloading supplies there for the Tsar's army. This is 1917, uh, February of 1917. So the British Foreign Office sends, sends a telegram to Kerensky, who's in charge of the provisional government. Stilipin's been dead for 11 years by this point. And they say, hey, uh, we know that this guy Lenin is on his way, and he's been calling for the violent overthrow of your country, and he means to do it. Do you want us to turn him back? Think about that for a second. Turn him back. If Lenin's turned back, Trotsky, who would know better than anybody, said if it hadn't been for Lenin, there would have been no revolution. They could have just turned him around. That would have been it. No communism, no no communism, no 20 million people killed, no no world war, uh, no um, 
uh, Cold War, no, no anything, no, no Vietnam, no Korea, no invasion of Hungary, no invasion of Czechoslovakia, no invasion of Poland, no Cuba, no China, none of it. Lenin, uh, uh, 570, uh, 5708 Rivera says, when did Lenin catch the attention of authorities? They've been aware he was agitating for violent overthrow for at least 10 years and probably longer. He was doing it for 17 years. Anyway, Lenin arrives in Petrograd. The Germans put enough money into his printing press so that Pravda goes from, you know, 60,000, uh, 20,000 uh, copies a day to 200,043 different editions, all the rest of it. So Lenin uh, has his coup and, and the communists take over. Because Kerensky was too weak and too vain, he started sleeping in the czar's bedroom and he demanded that when he entered the Winter Palace, they'd raise the flag and lower it when he left, just like the czar. He's an actor, right? And he's got actor vices. So Lenin comes along, completely destroys the peasantry, tries to drive them on communal farms, and then you have the first of these great famines, the Red Terror, which was enforced famine, and you've got cannibalism in Russia. And things become so bad, and hunger is so widespread, and the shortages are so widespread throughout all the cities. Things were so bad after Lenin took over that, just as one example that I used, because there were hundreds of them, just as one example, um, if you sent a package to somebody, you asked them to mail back the paper and the string, because you couldn't get paper and string in Lenin's socialist paradise. So after several years, somewhere around 1923, so five years after the revolution, 22-23, Lenin says, we got to stop this communism thing because it's killing the country. We're going to do something called the new economic policy, which is we're going to reintroduce capitalism. It's going to be state-run capitalism, but capitalism. Thousands of Communist Party members tear up their, their membership cards right there. Everybody thinks, my God, what do we have the revolution for? Lenin says, we're going to do it because otherwise we're going under. So the new economic policy goes into place. All the shortages disappear. Private property is back in place. The peasants get to keep the, the fruits of their own labor. Now all of a sudden Russia is producing a lot of food and a lot of, and a lot of grain and a lot of everything else. This goes on for seven years, just long enough for the Russian economy to recover enough to be destroyed again. And then Stalin has the terror famine of 1930 and 31. Seven, eight million people die. So just so we're clear on this, you've got serfs rushes okay you've got communal land russia starving you've got stolypin reforms private property russia is out producing the other three grain countries grain exporters by 30 percent lenin comes in and communalizes the farm now you've got starvation and cannibalism lenin releases communist practices put private property in place all the shortages go away and then stalin comes in and re-socializes everything and russia stays a grain importer for the rest of its life uh the soviet union's life all throughout the 70s and the 80s, the Russians are, are the Soviets are giving America gold in exchange for grain, which is a pretty good deal for us. Anyway, uh, I just want you to take a final look at this guy, because if he had not been assassinated, he was falling out of his favor with the Tsar, so he probably would have been kicked out of the government. But if he had not been assassinated, when the first revolution came in February, instead of Kerensky running the government, Stolypin would have run the government. And unlike Kerensky, Stolypin knew there were 4,000 government officials murdered by socialist terrorists in one year before Stolypin took over. So he would, if you were a low-level guy, low-level terrorist, he'd banish you to Siberia. If you were a high-level terrorist, he'd hang you. And um, 
And if he'd survived, it would have been him at the provisional government. They would have scheduled the elections that would have given the legitimacy and everything that else followed. 20 million people in Russia, Cold War, and all of that stuff. None of that would have happened. Um, but if you want a single thumbnail hand grenade uh, to throw your socialist uh, buddies, you just remind them of that. Socialism, people are starving. Private property, they're exporting surpluses. Socialism, people are starving. Private property, the shortages go away. Socialism, people are starving. That's the pattern, but that's probably just coincidence. Okay, um, so I'm very glad to be done with that. I've got a lot of things that I have to catch up on, and I have to get some new content out. I'm going to uh, do a firewall to just to kind of make up for being away for so long, and I'm going to start working on these uh, don't be an idiot things. Um, Anyway, uh, one thing that's a little off topic that I want to talk about just because I discovered it yesterday and uh, I'm not even thinking about this so much as content as just recreation because uh, I got I to gotta do something. Um, you know, I've been either here or sleeping at home for three months. And uh, uh, salt... Uh, Salty War Pig, you can um, just look at look at look up uh, uh, Piotr Stolypin on Wikipedia. Find out everything you can about Stolypin, and then you have to know the rest of the history, right? You have to know about like new economic policy and the Red Terror and all the rest of it. But once you get it, it's there. Thank you, uh, Blank Frankie, for a, a twenty dollars super chat. That Lenin guy sounds like a real jerk. And when you hear when you get to the episodes, and you hear what Lenin says about the peasants, he didn't speak that way about the Tsar. He didn't speak that way about the Germans. He didn't speak that way about the capitalists. He is stark raving mad. Um, thank you. I got a comment about my hair looking sharp. Got a haircut earlier today. So anyway, this is a, a off topic for today, and I will develop it more on Monday because it is probably a little more of a kind of a pop culture media thing. But there's a bit of bit of politics and a little bit of military in it. Um, thank you, Eric. I'm very glad to see that. Glad to have you. Um, so, uh, I've been working real hard and I haven't, uh, I haven't turned on my, uh, computer at home for anything. I haven't had a chance to work on any of the, um, uh, colony stuff, although that's done. Um, and so I'm going to be working on that. But, um, and I did a lot of Star Citizen several uh, years ago, which took up way too much of my time. Um. Now, for those of you who are familiar with it, I'll go into more detail on this, like I said, on Monday. Uh, but there is a, um, and thank you for the, uh, thank you for the group uh, effort to give me a couple days off. I appreciate that. Um, but there is a really, I think maybe the most remarkable single piece of software out there is called uh, DCS. It's Digital Combat Simulation. I am exhausted, Faith. Thank you. Uh, uh, and um, and basically, it is a. To, to, it's probably the most flight simulator of all the flight simulators. This is the kind of thing where every single button in the cockpit of every single airplane works exactly the way it's supposed to work. It is not a joke. It's not a plague thing. It is extraordinarily difficult. And yeah, Growling Sidewinder, I'm a big fan of his channel, and, and got to be a fan of Long Shot too, but. But anyway, um, and it looks fantastic. It's it, like anything else with computer graphics; it gets better looking every year. And uh, I was going through my 
uh, personal pictures not too long ago. Uh, yeah, this will be, I'm going to have to zoom this down. But I saw this from, I don't know, I want to say this is maybe 2012, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah, there you go, it came right in. Uh, um, I love that picture. Uh, that is me at Miramar Air Station. Uh, the guy, um, now we won't be here all night talking about airplanes. The guy, uh, the, the actual man in the picture is, uh, call sign is Amish. He, he was a fan. He invited me down there. And um, he put me in the F-18 simulator that uh, that the Navy and the Marines used to train their pilots, which was a full, it wasn't a full motion simulator, but it was a, you're in a complete dome. So um, I saw that and I thought, man, put me in that simulator. And I said to Amish, I said, look, I don't care if I crash the airplane. I don't care if I, if I destroy the, the, the carrier. I just want everything set to real, right? Whether I do well or badly, I just, I don't want any cheats, right? Okay. Uh, so I took off from uh, Miramar, and, and, and when you pull back on the stick, there's, again, it's not a full motion thing, but because there's so much peripheral vision, when you pull back, you can feel yourself like going back like this. And I was so impressed by that. I said, God, that is fantastic. It feels like I'm really, really tilting back. And he's, I'm talking to him, and he's in the control room. He says, uh, yeah, so let me, let me pull the gear up. And he says, yeah, too late for that. Uh, you're doing 270 knots of park gear, the landing gear somewhere in the parking lot out there. I was like, okay, well, I hope it didn't. Hope it did a Prius, I think I said. Um, but aside from that moment, I went up and um, did a lot of air-to-air -air stuff. That was pretty simple. Hit the tanker. That's difficult. That was fun. Did some air-to-ground stuff. But then the, the highlight of the thing was um, was doing uh, the landings. That's what I wanted to get right. And I'd had some experience with it on a much, much more primitive flight simulator than DCS. So I said, okay, Amish, I, I just want to try it for real. Okay? He said, sure. So it puts me in 10 mile in trail behind a, uh, the Nimitz. And, um, and everything on this has to be done. I mean, the airspeed has to be perfect. You have to have a positive five degree angle of attack you can't just fly it onto this thing it's a controlled crash and the controlled crash your control your altitude with your throttle it's very counterintuitive it's hard uh so my first attempt i hit the deck and and i knew enough about this to to know that the second you hit the deck the instant you hit the deck you go to full afterburners because if you miss the wire you're going to need those or else you're going to the water so I'm watching this thing coming, you know, I'm a little long, a little long, then a full afterburner, round I go. So that's called a bolter. When you miss a wire, it's called a bolter. So first landing attempt, bolter. But I didn't crash the airplane. I didn't damage the carrier either. So, all right, let's go around again. So this time I come in a little bit shorter, not quite so so deep. The one thing, better to land long and miss and go around than to land six inches short and go into the nameplate where it says Nimitz because that's a bad, bad deal. Um, uh so I go for a second attempt, and this time I was much closer, uh, but I bolted again. And then the third time, I landed and caught the fourth wire. And um, and he said, you've never done this in, in a real sim before? I said, no. He said, well, you son of a bitch, he said, that is exactly, precisely what my first three actual carrier traps were when I was qualifying for, for fleet. 
I had a bolter, a bolter, then a fourth wire. And I'd had 200 hours of training doing this. I said, well, what can I say? One of the best moments of my life. Um, so, uh, yes, I have to tell that story. Uh, thanks, Dave. Just real quick, uh, when you land, like I said, you have to go to full afterburner, assume that you missed the wire. That's a true story. It's one of my favorite aviation stories. Real quick, uh, the term for a guy who's not qualified or a first-timer guy on his first actual cruise is called a nugget. And um, this one nugget was having a hard time getting on board the, the boat, real hard time. Bolter, 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 bolter. He missed six, seven times, something like that. I think he went up and refueled once, and he stepped coming back, and it looked like he was going to have to refuel again because the guy just couldn't, couldn't make the landing. Conditions probably weren't optimal. But anyway, so this guy, this young guy, brand-new guy to the fleet, he finally, on his seventh attempt or eighth attempt or something, he lands, catches the wire with his tail hook, and he's on full afterburner, and, and he's so stressed he's so adrenalized that he knows he stopped he's at a dead stop but he's still a full afterburner now what you're supposed to do is just come off the engines the the tension on the cable will actually pull the jet back a little bit that'll slacken the cable you pull the hook up taxi off but this kid was just <laughs> he was just so damn happy to be on the on the ship so the um so the <laughs> so the air boss gets on the radio and he says um uh, you can come off the afterburner son you're not going to make the boat go any faster and I just thought that was one of the greatest lines ever. So anyway, uh, so DCS has a really, really excellent, excellent uh, supercarrier module, and they've got a very, very good F-18 Hornet. Uh, so I've known about this for years. But then I saw something last night and, yes, and this morning that I just loved. Uh, and I'm going to make you sit through four minutes of it, and then I'll go right to the questions. But um, you're just going to have to endure this because I want to see it again. Uh, because DCS is so difficult, because it's so realistic, I like people that take things seriously. The, the, the thing I liked most about flying was that you had to take it seriously. In other words, you couldn't do this at 60% power, you know. The thing I like most about flying was I like the sensation of flying. But mostly I like the sensation of feeling like I have to use, you know, pretty much everything I got in the box to do this safely. Uh, hang on. Two, two Super Chats. Let me get them out of the way real quick. Thank you, Cody Fett, for $20 Super Chat. I heard there was a new story-based F-18 module for getting scrubs like me into DCS, but that there were a political scuffle because they'll all go after YouTubers that play their module and mentions that uh, Taiwan exists. I don't know about the Taiwan thing. I know that DCS is done by Eagle Dynamics, which, as far as I know, is an all-American, relatively independent company. Makes me want to throw up when I think about what DCS could do with the $500 million that Star Citizen had. What it really makes me think is what would have happened to Star Citizen if they'd hired the guys that made DCS, because that was fantastic. Uh, and real quick from Bad Weather Biker, uh, what amazes me about carrier landings is that they did it with phantoms. Yes, they did. The F-4 is a big fighter, and the fact that they did traps with them uh, on carriers that were smaller than the ones of, of today truly amazes me. Absolutely right. The, uh, the, the, the F-4 had a lot of nicknames. My favorite by a, by a lap is uh, the Great Smoking Thunderhog. Uh, and these were not particularly agile airplanes either. Yeah, and the decks were, you know, 
70%, the size of a Nimbus class deck. Anyway, it's all about taking it seriously. I've seen tons and tons and tons. There's this guy who's got a channel called Growling Sidewinder. I watch everything he does. He's a, any, any plane he goes up against, he wins. And his air-to-air tactics and, and, and the, the missile launch and the, you know, and the, and the, 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 the notching it, the notching the missiles and, and all of this stuff is great. But there's something about landing on a carrier that is just, it's just, well, it's the hardest thing you can do. It's the hardest thing you can do in aviation. So needless to say, there's been a lot of missions where these guys are like, there's a group out there I'm not super big fans of called the Grim Reapers, and they all just kind of goof off and everybody's got their own different airplane. You know, somebody's flying this, somebody's flying that. I wanted wanted somebody to take it seriously. So I found um, this uh, virtual squadron uh, called the Stingers. I don't even know if they're still around. Last video they did was about a year ago. But these guys take it seriously. And on Friday nights, what they would do is they would do, um, they would just do traps. A trap is a, is a carrier landing. And they have 11 or 12 guys in the squadron, same 11 or 12 guys. They've each got their own number. It's 301, 300, 301, 302, so all the way to 311 or something. Um, just because I'll forget if I don't, the, 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 the Phantom was called the Great Smoking Thunderhog because the engines were so dirty. And it's not good because when you're flying in Vietnam, you know, you're trying to find airplanes like a little speck out there at 20 miles, but the Phantoms had this big black line that led you right to where the airplane is. Uh, but um, the Thunderbirds did fly F-4s for several years and the number four jet which is the so you get the leader you got uh, one and two on the wings and then number four is the slot he's the guy flying behind and if you look at the thunderbirds when they're flying f4s the, the the vertical stabilizer of the of the number four jet is painted black never before or since painted black because there was no way to keep that there's no way to keep that tail clean it's just picking up so much smoke from every single show they flew Anyway, um, back to these guys. So, so what these guys do is they do um, they do just do carrier traps, and they here's the part I like. They rate them based on the way the Navy rates their carriers. Every single landing on a carrier is aggressively criticized, and there's a certain terminology that's used and and these guys use that terminology in the report so you never land on an aircraft carrier without hearing from from somebody thank you for the welcome back uh, man's good to see everybody so i saw this and i thought oh my god and 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 they're using the the, the correct you know terminology and they've got a guy who sounds like he's on the um like on the deck loudspeakers and these guys are just coming in. They're coming in by twos. They come in. They do the, they do the Sierra Hotel break, and, they, and just one guy comes in. Wingman goes a little longer. He comes in, and they just score the landings. And I want to be a part of this real bad. And when I come back to this topic on Monday, I have a lot of other sh- stuff to show you. There are people that manufacture cockpit, the entire cockpit of an F-18 where every single switch and dial works and that connects itself to DCS so that you are no longer, you know, using your mouse to flip a switch. You just, everything works. And, 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 and these guys, I'm pretty sure they get into flight suits and, and I would do that too. I know it sounds a little silly, but I wanted to do it my whole life and I can't and I won't. So this is as close as you can get. Anyway, I'm just, just going to force you to listen to uh, three or four minutes of this.
because um, I just want you to I just want you to see how seriously these guys take it, and I want you to see how good the, the graphics look. So um, I just picked one almost at random, uh, but this is from the uh, Stingers TV channel on YouTube, and these guys are all talking to each other on the internet. Uh, I don't know how many of them were actual pilots, maybe none of them, but they sure as hell know what they're doing. So you'll hear some. Just so you just give you a quick idea what you're looking at, you'll hear, uh, you'll see that the jet will come around in the pattern. You'll cut, first of all, the two jets will come overhead. They'll do the overhead break, the Sierra Hotel break, the shit hot break. They just, one guy, the, the lead will peel 90 degree turn and crank the plane around. Ideally, you should only see the belly of the aircraft. If he, if he goes so far that you see the top of the airplane, he's gone too far. So he just basically comes in and cranks this incredible turn. He's at 400 knots or something. And he slows down on the way, drops his gear, drops his hook. Then You'll see the camera. They put the, the, the DCS generates a, the landing camera. They put it in a little arcade kind of TV screen to show that it's a screen. It's an inset. And it's basically just got crosshairs. And if the jet's too high or too low or if it's left or right, they'll say high. You know, if there's, you're high, you'll cut back on the power because power, the jet's at a steady angle. It's not, you're not landing and you're sure as hell not flaring. Navy pilots, uh, Talking about Air Force pilots, say, uh, flare to land, squat to pee. So this thing comes down at this angle, and if you're low, you've got to add power. And if you're high, you have to cut power. And then they'll say left or right. And when you hear them say, call the ball, that goes back to the World War II days of aviation. But basically, in order to help carrier pilots accomplish this virtually impossible procedure, which is landing an airplane on a moving target that's, you know, length of a football field, maybe. They had something called the meatball, and it was a like a Fresno lens. And when you were on the correct glide slope, you would see you would see these lights light up. They've got a newer version of this. So when when these guys are in the in the groove, the um, the landing signals officer, uh, they still call them paddles, because back in the day he had these orange paddles, and he would you know you've seen these guys doing this. This is what you want to do with your wings, you know, because these propeller planes are coming in slow enough so that you know you'd see this okay you got a really drive then join then they'll just do cut you know or that kind of thing uh but they still got the they've still got the lights on the side of the of the carrier as well as radio radio beams that you're using to fly the needles on the way in like any other ils approach and you'll hear the you'll hear the um the landing signal officer say uh, call you know three quarter mile call the ball that means do you have this landing thing in sight are you ready to land this thing and then the guy will say uh you know uh, Hornet 302 uh, got the ball. And then then he'll say, Roger ball, which means he knows that you know. And then as the jet is just off the deck, you'll hear him say, I think he says, in close is the call. Anyway, last thing I'll tell you about this. These guys take this seriously. If you look at this video, what you're about to see, on the bottom left-hand corner, you'll see numbers from about 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and then it goes red at seven eight nine ten gets more and more orange then there's like 12 to 18 or 19 somewhere in that vicinity they're green numbers and then on the other side it goes to yellow and red that's the amount of time you're in the in the in the groove the groove is the groove is when you are lined up straight on your way in and you don't want to be in that groove for too long got a lot of guys trying to come in you don't want to come in on a 17 mile final and take 40 minutes to land the jet right so you gotta you gotta crank this thing around the turn Put the thing on the bearing. Once you're established in that in that uh, landing vector, 
you're in the groove. And if you're in the groove too short, that's negative points. If you're in too long, that's negative points. They want you right around 16, 17, 18 seconds in the groove. And finally, um, there are four wires on uh, Nimitz class carriers, only three on the Ford. Um, but the wires from the back of the stern of the ship to the front are the number one, number two, number three, and number four wires. You want to hit the number three wire. That's a perfect landing. That's the best case scenario. Next worst case is to hit the number four wire. Then after that is to hit the number two wire. Two, three, and four, okay. If you hit the one wire, that's real bad because like I said, if you go long, you just either bounce off the deck or you miss it, you go around. The one wire is closest to the to the stern of the boat. If you hit the one wire, you're too low and you damn near went into the ramp, ramp strike, and that's the end of you, and that's that you have to go out and repaint the ship, right? Because you've just flown right into where it says USS Nimitz. So when you watch this video, you'll see once these guys get established in the groove, you'll see this little counter at the bottom. It'll start going five, six, and then it, once it gets to seven or eight, it'll go seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and they're just things counting. They want him right in this range. If he goes too long, it'll lower his score. If he gets a three wire inside that, three wires in 17 seconds in the slot, perfect. Um, uh, let me see here real quick, the super chat from Difa. What's your favorite non-US contemporary fighter in service today? I'm partial to the Saab uh, Gripen and the Typhoon. Both excellent choices. I thought the Saab Draken was a, just a wicked cool looking airplane. Um, I actually, I'll have to think about that. We'll talk about that on Monday if you can come back. All right, so here we go. So um, three or four minutes of these guys, and I don't know if the squadron is still open. If they are, I want to fly with them. If not, I want to find some other people who know enough about this to do this. So you're going to have to endure it three or four minutes because I want to see it again. Then we'll get on with the questions. Here we go. Oh, and that's not bad, by the way. They're in the recorder ball, call the ball. 306, we're going to ball, 5-6. Roger ball. Right, the lineup. Like a 20, 19 or 20 second group time. Ladies and gentlemen, and all the other I's and Q's, welcome back to the VFA 113 Stingers Supercarrier Traps Night. Coming into the overhead break is a fantastic combination of talent and genius. 306 Barney and 302 Curveball. Genius, how much you pay him to get that one? Wow. Look how low he is, nice. Oh, bird is dead. got uh, 301 Coco firmly cemented in the number one spot, and I'm falling down to, what's that in maths? Is that three and a half, three points behind? And then we got Banger, and then it gets real tight around the five, six, and seven, so, um, and eight. So, uh, yeah, it should be an exciting night. Yes. Three quarter mile, call the ball. Uh, 306, one at ball, Coast four, five. Yeah, he was... Probably longer than that, huh? Yeah. I'm not going to say anything because he's looking pretty good. Four wire! Nice. Four wire, nice. buddy. Right on. Just a little long in the groups. So that's a minus a half point uh, there, Barney. So that's a fair pass at two and a half points. Right on. Thank you, Paddles. Right, Three zero two the horn ball. 4.2. Three quarter mile, call the ball. 
just throwing a ball 4.2. Now this is looking pretty good for someone that hasn't nice. Yeah, it looks real nice. Hopefully it doesn't settle. Come on, dude. Come on, dude. Oh, it's gonna be a three! Two wire! Wow. <laughs> nice. Welcome back. Nice. Hey, uh, no grade there, curve Two wire. But welcome back, buddy. How's it feel? He's too short. Oh, thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, it feels amazing. Um, <laughs> I'm surprised I got on the boat. Yeah, nice. Wow. That looks pretty solid, man. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am to be back. Curveball on the platform. I'm going to welcome aboard Char 300 and the perennial helicopter favorite, Boogie 303. Want to come into the rig, folks, on another beautiful VFA 113 Stingers trap night. They are looking tight, folks. Let's see something dramatic from Jar. Oops, nothing but ah. belly! Yeah, that looked awesome. Beam all down on it. Runs tight circle. Let's see if he can keep it. Ooh, man, he's got a lot of energy to bleed. Can he gather it all together for one sock? It's Char on the shelf. He's on line. He's on center line. Three hundred Hona ball, five point one. Roger ball. He's looking good on and on. Yep. In close. So, that looks like a three wire. Yeah, that's a four, eh? Yeah, that's a four wire. Four wire with a uh, 17 second groove. Nice job. Really? Yeah, awesome. Thanks, pedals. <laughs> Finally, not a two wire, yeah? <laughs> yeah, at the one that we got Doogie 303. Sorry about that. I deleted the uh, wrong thing. Uh, yeah. So, um, so that guy uh, with the uh, super jazzed up uh, paint scheme was the um, uh, the leader of the squadron. Who happens to be Australian, but the rest of it was uh, was great. Uh, and um, I just I just thought it was I thought it was great. And they look like they're having a lot of fun, and I really, 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 really want to do that. And I'll bring um, Monday. I'll be a lot more prepared. I'll edit some stuff down, and I'll show you some of these things that they actually sell. It's unbelievable. I certainly can. Uh, I want to say in front of the literally hundreds of people that are watching the show, uh, both live and recorded. Happy birthday to uh, Sarah! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday to Sarah! Happy birthday to you, sincerely, and many more. That's for our friend Clay Bradley. I don't know if you're watching Lamps here, but happy birthday. Uh, Clay's a super guy. Don't tell him I said so. Uh, Cody Fett for a $10 super chat said, uh, double check the developers of DCS F A 18 
Rising Squall went after Ace Combat fan for supporting the Hong Kong protests. It's been an expanded DCS videos until that happened. Um, that might be DCS FA18C Rising Squall. I think is a is a um, is a mission pack. I'm not saying you're wrong, but I, I'm hoping that that is the people that developed that mission pack. The, the reason DCS is so phenomenal is because it's open sourced. If, if Star Citizen had been open source, it would have been released 12 years ago or eight years ago, and it would have been phenomenal. Um, so you, there are individual companies out there that put together the different aircraft, and there are guys that put together different missions. And, and what you're referring to there is uh, F-18, uh, F-A-18C Rising Squall is either a mission pack or um, it might be the guys who developed the Hornet thing. In either, in either case, it is uh, alarming, and I'm not happy to hear that, and I'm sure the DCS fans aren't either. Um, uh, last question on this came up while we're watching, then we'll get to the questions. Um, the question was, uh, can China match the operational tempo? Because what you just saw is basically what the U.S. Navy does pretty much all the time. Uh, the Chinese had, um, had I want to say, two carriers that were jump jet carriers. They, were, they don't have catapults. They just fly off, and then there's a ramp at the end, and it just kind of you know, pushes them up into the air. Uh, I thought, oh, you know, they don't have a lot of aircraft, maybe eight or ten or something like that. I talked to my friend Foghorn Fighter Pilot who said that, uh, yeah, it's real impressive, but they can't carry any ordnance. They, they don't have the oomph to get off the ground without flying on half fuel and no ordnance. So, yeah, it looks great, but it's worthless. The, the Soviet, uh, formerly Soviet aircraft carrier, the Russian aircraft carrier, Admiral Kudnasov, which I think is its fourth name, and it's very, very bad to rename a ship as far as sailors are concerned. That thing has been towed to port more often than it's sailed to port. It's um, it's uh, a jump a jump ramp thing. It uses uh, for fuel. It doesn't it's not nuclear powered like our carriers are. It, it not just burns oil, it burns a particularly horribly gross form of garbage oil that is readily available and cheaply in the Soviet Union. And to give you an idea of how screwed up the Russian military is, they've got this carrier that spent, I don't know, it was something like eight or nine years in dry dock. And because they had not made arrangements to put electrical power from the ground into the carrier, they had to keep the carrier's boilers going to generate power on board the carrier, which means that for eight or nine years, they basically, you know, fouled their entire propulsion system just to keep the lights on and, and, and the air conditioning running, just because just they couldn't either didn't figure out or couldn't figure out how to get an electrical line to it. I guarantee you the answer is, is that the reason they didn't do that was because somebody's making money by selling oil to the carrier, some guy on the Kuznetsov, Kuznetsov. Oh, by the way, uh, Admiral Kuznetsov was a real guy. Uh, Stalin had, had him killed uh, shortly uh, after he became popular. Um, but the question was, can they uh, keep up with the U.S. operational tempo? Now, we did a right angle on this one, say, four or five years ago, something like that. The, the Chinese now have in operation a flat-deck catapult-launched aircraft carrier that looks a good deal like one of ours, like everything else we do looks like one of ours because they just steal the technology because they can't come up with this on their own. Uh, 
but what does that say about us? You know, we just let spend, you know, $600 billion a year on this for 15, 20 years. Yes, he is, um, uh, Bob. And um, anyway, so a couple of years, three, four years ago, we did a, we did a, a right angle on this, I want to say. And you'll see the you'll see the, the guys on the deck will look exactly like our guys. They'll be wearing the same outfits, the same colors. They're all color-coded guys. I think the grapes are the guys in purple. I'm pretty sure they're responsible for refueling, if I remember correctly. But in any event, they've got everything looking exactly like ours, except it's spotless. It's absolutely spotless. Looks like it came out of the factory yesterday. And at first glance, you think, oh, it's so new and shiny. It's like, it's new and shiny because it's not getting any use. They... They do everything that we do in exactly the same order, including the, the, the shooter pose, everything. It's just, it's just they've just reinvert, they've re-engineered everything, including the, the gestures, the hand gestures. You can't hear a thing on the deck of an aircraft carrier. You're standing right next to four or five of the loudest jet engines of the world at full power, full after. We can't hear anything. It's all, it's all hand signals. So they do it. Uh, yes, uh, C.P. Tome says they've got a nuclear-powered uh, supercarrier under construction okay so this is why i don't this is why i don't worry about the chinese I'm, I'm not i'm not um not saying they're not a threat i'm just saying that like we've seen with russia they're they're not they're not even close to what we could do so you see them and they're doing these missions and they're doing the salutes and off they go and the Chinese are there seeing this. Oh, look at us. We're just like the Americans. You know, well, first of all, you got one and we have 11. Secondly, um, this is show. I don't know if, um, I don't know what these things will carry. They're using a, a Japanese, uh, sorry, a Chinese uh, reverse engineered uh, flanker, Sukhoi. Uh, but and and uh, CP Tomes here has got it right, and and then I will move on. They've got they have absolutely no experience. Uh, took us what ten years to sort it out. Actually, uh, Mr. Tomes, it took us more like sixty years to seventy years to sort it out. There are only two countries in the history of the world that knew how to operate aircraft carriers. Lots of them have them. Britain really started it. Uh, but the British never knew how to run carriers. They still don't know how to run carriers. Uh, despite the Queen Elizabeth class, they just they just don't. They, they've never shown they know what they're doing with it. Uh, the Chinese don't know what they're doing, and the Russians don't know what they're doing. The only other people ever knew how to run an aircraft carrier uh, navy were the Japanese, and they were damn good at it. In the beginning of the war, um, um, uh, what was it? I want to say Kudu but that's not quite right. The Japanese mobile uh, force of, of eight carrier decks, most powerful military force in the history of the world, 1941. Um, Kudobutai? Something like that. So there's only two countries that know how to do this. And it's not, it's not can you build a, a, a big, big ship with a flat deck, and can you build a catapult, and can you have jets, and not even can you have guys who know how to land on the jets. The question is, how fast can you do it? And also, what conditions can you do it in? Now, these guys were doing their their um, their trap ratings just for fun and for fun and practice, right? Everything I've ever seen from the flat deck, everything I've ever seen from any other carrier other than a U.S. carrier ever on film ever is in uh, Category One conditions. 
perfect sunny day, minimum wind, right? When you're landing on a when you're landing on the deck, I learned this from the stingers too. In in moderate moderate seas, the deck will go from two or three feet the 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 the, the ramp, the edge of the ramp, two or three feet down to something like 30 feet up. So there's about a 40 foot difference where the runway is coming up to meet you or falling away from you. That's hard. And I have seen footage from, and I'll try to have this by Monday because I'm going to be spending a lot of time on this, I think. I have seen footage of U.S. carrier ops where they are coming in on instruments and you can't see the carrier until you are practically over this the, the start is is just phenomenal, and the and you see it from the from from the LSO op, uh, position, the paddles guys, it's just nothing. I mean, it's just the, and then just whoosh, thing comes out of the clouds. Amazing. By the way, the 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 guys on the um, it's all around the deck on the uh, on our carriers, but the guys especially at the um, the LSO station, uh, you didn't see it here, but if you look carefully, they're all standing there, and there's a little shield because you always have to sail into the wind, and if there's no wind, you've got to make wind. I'm pretty sure that they, in fact, I'm virtually positive that they cannot land or they cannot launch or recover aircraft off of U.S. aircraft carrier unless the carrier is at 30 knots. So if the carrier is sitting still, you would think that would be easier, but it's much harder. If the carrier is just moving through perfectly calm air at 30 knots, that means that you've got a 30 knot headwind essentially you're cutting 30 knots off of the speed you need because the thing's moving in the direction with you if you've got a 60 knot headwind that's even easier the more of a headwind you have the easier one minor problem with this and this is what happened with the story of taffy three which um, i by the way for those of you who didn't catch it i got approval to do the frank luke script so that's the beginning of these feature level uh screenplays about america's forgotten heroes which will be frank luke and if we can pull that off then john paul jones uh Booker T. Washington, Doolittle Raid, and Taffy Three. Um, so, um, so the so the Chinese can't. They, it, they just make it. They just look like they're doing it, and I find that very reassuring. I was on. Uh, uh, I, pull, I don't know why I pulled a couple of these a couple of days ago, but since I got them, yeah. This is the kind of um, rabid warmongering lunatic that we need. Uh, come on. Yep. Hang on. Hang on. I'm very, very, very fortunate to have been able to do this to consider it some of the high point of my life. So um, that is the uh, that's a superstructure on. Um, uh, I want to say DDG 111, USS Spruance. And uh, that lunatic there is out some, I want to say we're about 40 miles off, off the coast of San Diego. Out on, I had to fly out there on a helicopter. It was epic. Uh, so, yeah, I love this stuff. And, um, and I see these guys with these channels that are getting, you know, they're getting three four hundred thousand views and I'm getting eighteen thousand for a firewall so we're gonna try some different stuff we're gonna keep doing the firewalls and all the rest but I've been on I've been on a uh, I've been on a guided missile destroyer and I've been on a nuclear submarine I've been 
USS Pasadena 600 feet below the surface of the Pacific doing about 20 knots and sitting with my back to a wall behind which was 160 million watts of power coming from a nuclear reactor, which I thought was awesome too. Yeah, the Arleigh Burks are great, great. They're maybe the best, they're not maybe, they're the best destroyers ever built of any kind. So a fantastic platform. And the, the Chinese have, have destroyers that look virtually the same as the Arleigh Burks, and they have some of the same capabilities, probably the same capabilities as the Arleigh Burks, and they're building a lot more than we are. But does that mean that they're the same kind of threat? No, it's what I was saying before. There's two countries that have ever run carriers. It is not... The, the the Chinese will never, ever be able to do what we do in the Navy until uh, this would be the beginning. The Chinese Navy, the official name of the Chinese Navy is the People's Liberation Army Navy. You just think about that for a second, right? You just think about it. The other country is Japan. Um, the Japanese, one of the things that would have made it harder for us was tough war in, in the Pacific and Japan. Uh, but one of the things that helped the Americans was the fact that the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy hated each other almost as much as they hated us. They would never work together unless they were forced to, and then if they did, they were both in kind of cover-your-ass mode. There's no cooperation between these two forces. And the same is true for China. This is... The, the, nobody in the world does this. Nobody in the world does this. Certainly not Russia, right? Is combined arms. We can have a cruise missile launched off of a off of a U.S. Navy submarine that is guided by an Air Force satellite and being target designated by a Marine Special Forces guy. And everybody's talking to everybody else. Nobody else in the world does this. In fact, the inter-service rivalry is so awful that they're really, it, it's just like, hey, man, let's, um, this is what I was saying back when, when we were worried so much about Islam, and we were rightfully worried about Islam. It's like, you got two different sects of Islam, and they hate each other more than they hate us? Yeah, we got Sunni and Shia. Why don't we do something to kind of, you know, why don't we just sort of work that seam a little bit? Uh, uh, Bill, did you forget that China has nuclear weapons, too, and infrastructure all over the world? No, I didn't forget that China has nuclear weapons. I didn't forget that we have nuclear weapons, either. Um, they may have infrastructure all over the world. I know they're building a lot of stuff in Africa, but they don't have 172 bases around the world like we do. And you know why that is? I'm not trying to make fun of you here, Adam. The reason that they don't have bases around the world is because nobody likes them. And nobody likes the Russians either. And uh, we have 172 installations. I think it's 172 bases. Maybe it's in 172 countries. And if they don't want us there, then we leave. That's what we did in the Philippines. Walked away from Subic Bay and Clark Air Force Base, two of the most advanced facilities on the planet. The, the Filipinos said, we don't want you here anymore. Okay, here you go. Pumped billions of dollars into your economy. And we are here at your pleasure. If you don't want us here, we'll leave. That's the kind of horrible imperialistic power that we are. Um, so I was on... See, this is why the Chinese just are never going to catch us. No, they're, just, they're just not. They, 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 they can't do it. Culturally, they can't do it. I was on the, the Spruance. I got a chance to talk to, spend a lot of time with the uh, with the uh, chief petty officer on the boat. Uh, 
and also uh, with a little time with the exec. And I asked him about this. I said, what do you think about the, the, the Chinese, what is it, Type 42, I want to say, Chinese destroyers. They're very similar to the Arleigh Burks. He said, they're real nice, you know, they're brand new and they're real nice and they've got a lot of capabilities. And I said, yeah, but are, how worried about them are you? He's, you know, I'm just standing with this guy off to the side because everybody else is, you know, like they're, they're like, you know, they're relatives or they're journalists or they're senators or something. I'm talking shop with this guy. And he says, um, well, we have done exchanges. This would be probably early 2012, 2013, before things got a little more, uh, so 10 years ago, before things started getting a little more tense. He said, we would do exchanges. We'd tour their ships and they'd tour ours. He said, we'd tour their ships and we'd get shown around, see all the nice stuff. He said, when they toured our ships, they kept getting lost. I said, really? It seems unlikely for naval officers. He said, yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? We would have a tour of Chinese uh, naval officers on our, on our destroyers, and there were 12 of them. We'd look around, and now there's nine. Let me venture a guess, uh, sir, where the other three went. Were they heading towards the CIC or were they heading towards, uh, you know, something like that? Yes, they accidentally were heading towards the most sensitive parts of the ship that weren't on the tour. Okay, what does that tell you, though, right? What, is it, what does it actually say? It doesn't just say that, they, that they're cheats. It's saying they have to cheat. We don't have to try to sneak out of a tour of a, of a, of a Chinese destroyer to pick up secrets that we don't have because... They don't have any secrets we don't have. What does it tell you? It tells you a lot about their culture, too. But the most important thing I ever heard ever, ever, from this guy, and this is why I don't worry about China so much. They're, look, they're not a blue water navy. Blue, they're a brown water navy. For those of you unfamiliar with the terms, brown water navy is shallow water navy. So coastal defense navy, they've got a lot of, got a lot of platforms out there. And as a, as a brown water navy, they're probably the second most powerful navy in the world in the brown water. Um, now, that's a great point there, King of Cleans. I'll get to that in a second. But they're not a blue water navy. They're not a force projection navy. They look like they are. They, 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 you'll see pictures of, of a Chinese carrier surrounded by Chinese destroyers, and everything looks exactly like it's supposed to, except it looks brand new. I'm just not convinced, right? They just don't know what to do. Um, anyway, so the one thing that reassured me the most because I know a lot about the U.S. Navy in World War II and talked about Taffy three too many times to count. But he said the reason he wasn't so worried about them was not because of the, uh, the, the quality of their gear. Their gear is not bad gear. He said it's the, it's the culture and they can't get around the culture. I said, can you give me an example? He said, sure. He said, on, our, on, this, on this ship, on the Spruance, he said, every single member of the crew, every member of the crew, is a damage control specialist, every one of them. There's not a cook or a mechanic or the captain or anybody else, medics, corpsmen, I should say, none of them are not able to put out a fire. They, the, everybody on this, every single member of the crew is trained, is trained in damage control. I said, that sounds good. He said, yeah, the Chinese have damage control parties. I said, right. 
He said, we used to have damage control parties too, the beginning of World War II. We had damage control specialists. And then we would take a torpedo or we'd take a kamikaze hit that either killed our damage control specialists or cut them off from where the damage is. So you got all these guys know how to fight the fire. They can't get to the fire. And we learned that the hard way. We learned that and spent a lot of blood doing that, you know. Most people, Guadalcanal with the Marine Corps, we lost 3,500 men in, in, in Guadalcanal, rightfully considered to be a bloodbath for the Marines and something to be very proud of for the Marines. We lost 5,000 sailors in the, in the uh, Guadalcanal campaign at, at sea. So we learned our lesson and we made appropriate changes. And the reason the Chinese won't do it and can't do it is, and this is the same thing for the Russians and it's the same thing for the Iraqis, certainly... It's true for every other non-Western military, and I bet you plenty of Western militaries do. They cannot accept the fact that, that enlisted personnel, regular sailors, are capable of doing things on their own. They can't, they, their culture just won't allow it. They cannot do it. So, um, so they won't have, they won't train their, their enlisted people to do this because they're, they don't think they're smart enough to do it. Or maybe they don't want them to be free enough to do it. So that's not a problem we have. Um, and I thought, man, I feel golden. I feel I feel great about this. Um, Coconut uh, ED five says that a marine friend of mine told me that told me once that holes don't sink ships, fire sink ships. Exactly. Now, now we get to the real problem. I'm not afraid of the Chinese. I'm afraid of. Uh, let's come out and say it. I'm afraid of the Democrats. That's what that's what concerns me with our military force. Um, we have a series of uh, assault uh, uh, vehicles. They're short, flat decks. They look like kind of, they're about the same size as a World War II carrier. And we use them for amphibious assaults. We used to put um, helicopters on them, then we put Ospreys on them. Now we're putting F 35s on them. Uh, these things don't have catapults or a ramp, so they're vertical takeoff and landing. But F 35 will do that, so these things now have some, some uh, capability. However, I don't know how many of these decks we have. I want to say we had about six, seven, or eight, something like that. And one of them was tied up at port at San Diego. Yeah, I think it's the Wasp class, Dave. I think we had one tied up, at, I think it was at San Diego. Uh, it was USS Bonhomme Richard, which was, uh, which was the fat and slow and ugly merchantman that John Paul Jones turned into a fighting ship. And we lost, an, we lost a carrier. We lost a flat deck carrier for the first time since 1944 or 45 because one sailor hated the United States and set fires on board Bonhomme Richard and it burned to the waterline. One American sailor sank that, that deck, that, that carrier. One What's going to happen to that guy? He'll probably go to prison for a few years. And that scares the living crap out of me. We were watching this happen in real time. I don't know how much of this is the Navy. I suspect a lot of it is the, the rot in the military is at the highest levels and works its way down. But when we were watching this thing burn, we were doing right angles on this, when we were watching it burn. Uh, Infidel42 says, Bill, that was proven to be crap. The Navy was trying to scapegoat that guy. I hope that's true. He was acquitted. I hope that's true. Really, seriously, that, I did not know that at all. Uh, 
I had no idea. I hope that is true. I really do. I'm glad to be wrong about that. But, but, in any event, we lost a carrier, we lost a, a, an assault uh, uh, carrier to fire at the dock. It wasn't out at sea. It didn't take torpedo hits. It was at, it was at the freaking dock. And while we're watching this, watching the ship burn, I'm thinking to myself, well, man, if there was ever a, a chance, if there was ever an exercise, right? If there's ever an exercise to find out how well-trained your crew is in damage control, this is it. Get get those guys on board. They should be fighting it already. Fire should be out by now. They should be get the guys on board. Now, since it was on, since it was uh, tied up, they didn't have a full crew on board. Great. But the people that knew how to save that ship were the sailors who'd been trained on it, and they wouldn't let them on the ship to fight the fire. That's for the civilians. That's for the San Diego Fire Department to worry about. So we watched it burn for four days until finally burned a hole in the deck and it was too expensive to repair, so we just scrapped it. It's gone. Right? Right. I apologize to the sailor. I've had nine people tell me it was a, a frame. I had no idea. I'm exceedingly happy to be wrong about this. Very happy. But that still doesn't excuse the fact that that a, what was it, either an intentionally set or, or unintentional small fire means you lose the vessel because they won't let the sailors on board. This is what they were saying in the news. They're, you're watching these sailors standing there. You know these these are the guys who know how to put the fire because they know the they know the freaking ship. These things are like mazes inside. There's no windows in there. You have no idea where you are. And they're sitting there, and the Navy is saying, no, 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 we don't want to risk our sailors. We don't want to, we don't want to, safety is our number one concern. Go to hell, you, you know, seriously, dude, why don't you just get out of the uniform and, and, and go open a daycare center for wounded animals or something? Safety is our primary concern. Okay, if that's the way you feel, uh, that's it. Unintentional and incompetence. Great. There were a number of collisions. I know I'm going to catch a lot of hell for this, but it's a data set. There were a number of collisions for safety uh, for surface vessels. I think we had three, I want to say a couple destroyers and something else, actually hit another ship in peacetime close to port. And what you found in those cases were that the officers of the deck were poorly trained diversity hires who had been written up before by having some kind of attitudes but you can't you know you can't pull um you can't pull them off of, off of duty because that would be racist and the number one strength of our military as we all know is our diversity and our commitment to climate change so well this is what happens when times are frivolous when times get serious this kind of nonsense will go away uh, anyway, um, all right, so I've been saying it's, I'll be getting to questions uh, any time now. It's 90 minutes, so it's probably time for me to get to questions. Damn it, it just drives me nuts. Uh, our Grouse says, I came in late. Did he talk about the drone and the Russian jet? I did not. Why don't we just do that real fast since it's a question, technically? Uh, I saw footage uh, today um, of this. Uh, so for those of you not familiar with it, we had a, a predator uh, or, or a reaper drone, a predator type drone uh, in international airspace over the Black Sea. 
and a couple of Russian, I want to say they're Sukhoi 27s, not 100% sure about that, came in and went, and, and the drones, it's there to take pictures. So you see the footage and here comes this Sukhoi. And just before he gets in front of the American drone, he starts dumping fuel. He's trying to blind the thing or, or whatever. So he does that kind of thing. And then the second guy comes by and um, SC-27, second guy comes by and chews up the propeller. The thing becomes uncontrollable, so they put it into the ocean, into the Black Sea. And the Russians then said, well, we will decide whether or not we want to recover the wreckage of that. And who cares? We've had these things shot down many times before. This, this reminds me so much of that incident. I have seen footage of the, of the Russian Navy bringing one of their warships so close to one of ours that it may have actually rammed it. And I've certainly seen footage of them, of them flying, uh, buzzing American uh, surface vessels so close that it was a coat of paint would have made the difference. And when we respond to these things, the U.S. uses the term we should use. This is, non, this is unprofessional. It's unsafe and unprofessional. Um, okay, we don't generally do unsafe and unprofessional things. But just before 9-11, this would be, it was 2020, 2021, because Bush had just been president, I think. We had an uh, Orion spy plane. It wasn't a spy plane. It was a spy plane. You wouldn't have known it was there. It's a reconnaissance plane. It's flying in international airspace, three miles or seven miles or whatever the, the agreed upon limit now is, off the coast of China. They sent up a, a, a couple jets to, it was 2001, yeah, sent up a couple jets, jets to intercept this thing. That's fair. We do that all the time. We're, they're constantly testing our response time. I can't tell you how many pictures I've seen of U.S. jets escorting bears or, you know, Tupolev's to the door. But, um, but this guy kept buzzing this E-3, Orion. It's usually a sub-hunting aircraft. And then he collided with it. And um, the crew had to make an emergency landing on uh, one of these Chinese islands. Most of the super sensitive gear has self-destruct mechanisms in there. Presumably they put those in there and burned it out. Uh, but the Chinese rammed our airplane in international space, Hainan Island, thank you. And nothing happened. So they'll keep doing that until something does happen. This is the thing I just never understand. My um, stepdaughter was in Dubai for uh, New Year's, and then she went to Bali. In Dubai, there is no crime at all, and that's because in Dubai, which is a Muslim country, they're pretty serious about punishing criminals. I don't want to level that kind of... Uh, rigidity. I don't want that kind of um, surveillance, but the idea of punishing criminals, what do you think about that, huh? Actually works. You try it. Yeah, that was a, that was a mess. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, I have to throw this in because uh, uh, MSO1103 in Twitch said uh, there were, there were two, it's not too long ago, also, it was two Iranian F-4s. We're, we were flying, we're flying the drones in the um, Persian Gulf. 
and the Iranians had intercepted one and I think shot one down in international airspace. That's an act of war. Right? That's an act of war. Oh, okay. So shot this drone down. And then we had another drone come out and they launched two F-4 Phantoms after this drone. Pretty easy pickings for for uh, an F-4, which is way out of date, but nevertheless. Uh, so these two F-4s are making a beeline for this drone to shoot this drone down. <laughs> and all of a sudden on their frequency, they hear an American pilot say, um, you guys really should go home now. And they turn and they look, and off their left wing is an, F is an F-22 Raptor. Been flying formation with them for 10 minutes. Had no idea it was there. Had no idea how it got there. Never picked it up on radar. It was just in that kind of... Um, just flying tight formation. They hadn't got a clue. You guys should, should probably go home now. That's what I love about this country. I just love it. That's what makes me happy. Uh, Blank says the only people that can afford to live in Dubai aren't criminals, Bill. That's true, but that's not true for Cairo or uh, or um, any of these. Cairo is a great example. I'm just saying when you punish criminals, you get less crime. When you don't, you get more crime. That's why if uh, you get some of these things that we've been talking about, if they had been punished for it, we would see less of it, but we didn't. It was in international airspace. Um so, anyway, yeah, yeah, Dubai's spectacular looking. It looks like Disneyland. It just, would you live there? I mean, it is spectacular. I'm jealous of the, I've said this before, and I swear to God I'm going to move on, but honestly, I think, I think I'm in favor of a 28th Amendment. Well, a 29th Amendment. The 28th Amendment would be to repeal the 16th, 17th Amendments, and then the 29th Amendment would be that it shall be uh, the law of the United States that the tallest building in the world must must be in the United States. That's what I would do. I would just basically say it's, it's Constitution. Well, we can't help it. Whenever they build something, we got to have we got to have something. It's a story taller, or else you know. Otherwise, it's unconstitutional. I don't think it's a bad idea. Although, when you're talking about tall buildings, uh, and getting people above the surface of the Earth, Dubai's got a long way to go before they get to the surface of the Moon. But I digress. All right, so let's um, let me do some uh, billwater.com things here because I've been. Uh, once again, I must put on the cogitation spectacles. Oh, by the way, since while well, I'm looking, if you want to know what the definition of true love is, uh, I had, all my life had wanted, all my life had wanted to get on the deck of a carrier. Um, and I had an invitation to do it, and I passed it up because I was going to be at the airport to pick up my wife. So you think about that, kids. 
Lizzie K, 1776 with a super chat says, Air Force Bed here. Loved your Cold War series. Shared it with my dad and he's really enjoying listening to it. Can't thank you enough for the series and can't wait to see the new one. Keep it up. Thank you, Lizzie. It's uh, Cold War is going to be a TV show and it's going to be a TV show very soon. We shot it back in, we it had existed as a podcast, audio only for a couple years, but we shot it in October. I've done, I need to do one tonight too. I need to do a uh they give me a final draft pass to make sure that everything's right, and I end up making 60 notes. It's like, you know, it's not a T-34. That's a, you know, tiger or something like that, and you need to fix it. Anyway, um, thank you for that, Lizzie, and uh, bless you. Uh, Saturday, I'm going to Point Magoo. I don't know if anybody's going to be there. Um, I was going to go to Point Magoo, Point Magoo because I wanted to see the Blue Angels, which I've never seen. And it turns out the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds are going to be there, which is I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen them fly since I haven't seen them fly I've seen the Thunderbirds fly since they were I've never seen the Blue Angels I haven't seen the Thunderbirds fly since they were in F4s so it's been a while I've seen F16 demos and F22 demos but uh, I'm looking forward to that if you're there by the way I am um, splurged on a table. Uh, uh, center of the flight line. So if you're there, come and find me and we'll say hi. Okay. Uh, come on. Here we go into the member forum. This is the Sanctus Civitas of uh, the internet here. And congratulations to, um, to our friend Eric, who's become a member after only 700 shows worth of questions answered for free. Good to have you, Eric. All right, let's see what we got here. 316.23, stress for lunch questions. Fantastic. Okay, Ian Nolan. Bill, I'm not trolling. Okay, that's a good start. I think this is an interesting question. Ignore the trolls. Here's a recent history hypothetical for you. Given that Sam, oh, here we go again. Given that Sank Bankman-Fried was the second largest political donor in 2022, you can guess who was number one, and the way that money laundering was done from Ukraine through FTX to Democrats, U.S. support for Ukraine probably cost us a fair number of races. Would the world be better off today if Putin had succeeded in Ukraine, but Republicans had swept? Uh, I have decided, by the way, I didn't mention this before I talked about it, just before I let myself get talked out of it, the epic rant of unrestricted F-bombs, I am not going to post that video. I'm just not. It's just too off-brand for me. I'm not ashamed of what I said, but I am not happy with how I said it. I was exhausted. I was working on the... I've been in living in this in this basement cell of the Lubyanka with the Soviet secret police, and somebody said America does just as bad as Russia, and that led to a whole kind of thing. So I'm not posting that. So look, th this is my attitude on this. I'll just say it one more time, and I'm not going to read the comments because I'm not going to reopen this. I've talked about it last show and show before that. It is irrelevant. The corruption in Ukraine and all the rest of it, and let's just say all of it's true, is important, but it's not relevant. It doesn't matter which country is being invaded, especially when it comes to Russia. Russia, let me just give you a small, off the top of my head, 
recap. Russia took German money in order to, the Soviets in order to take power. At the, as their civil war wound down, they invaded Poland. This would be in 1921 or something. At the end of World War II, Stalin was prepared to take the entire Red Army and move it to the Atlantic Ocean. He was going to take over all of Europe, and the only reason he didn't was because of two picadons uh, in in uh, southern Japan. When when the Cold War started, the lines that were drawn on the map were the lines where the Allied armies met the Russian army, the Soviet army. The line in Europe is where the Russian army encountered American and British forces. The line in Korea was where the uh, the line of Russian forces met what used to be Japanese and are now British and American forces. Same for Vietnam, same for all of these things. In 1956, the Russians invade Hungary because they want a little bit of freedom. Let me back up. In 1950, a Korean communist goes to Stalin and says, I think we can overrun the South. So he does. Stalin promises support. They're using Soviet weapons. And the Korean War started by a communist aggression from the north to the south backed by Russia, by the Soviet Union. In 56, they invade uh, Hungary because they don't like a little bit of freedom, so they massacre a bunch of civilians, go in there, take over that country. In 1960-something or other, early 60s, 64, 65, the communist North Vietnamese go to the Soviet Union and say, we think we can take over the south. So we spent the entire Vietnam War fighting guys that had Kalashnikovs, that had Soviet surface-to-air missiles, and were flying MiG-21s, MiG-17s, and all the rest of it. Russian tanks, all of it. We're not fighting the Russians. Technically speaking, technically speaking, we've never killed a Russian soldier in Korea or Vietnam. We were fighting their gear. So that was another invasion they had. In 1968, they invaded um, Czechoslova Czechoslovakia with the Prague Spring. In 1980, they invaded Poland. Also in 1980, they invaded Afghanistan, and they have done nothing but push their borders out. And when and when Putin, when when Barack Obama was in, when it was clear he was going to win, and McCain had essentially thrown in the towel six weeks before the election, Putin goes into Georgia, invades that sovereign country. You know, may not like it. it used to be an SSR, but it's not Russia. So they invaded uh, Georgia, and they basically took that over, and we didn't do anything. So in 2014, the Russians invade Ukraine, take all of Crimea, which had been given to them legally by the Russian, by the Soviets. Khrushchev gave it to them. It's got its own flag. It's its own sovereign nation. It invaded Crimea, took that away, invaded the, the uh, eastern part of Ukraine. We did nothing in 2014. Now they come to try it again, and this time the Ukrainians stopped them because they had a limited supply of our weapons. I'm not talking about sending our guys over there. I've never, ever been talking about sending our guys over there. And furthermore, there's plenty of evidence why we would not get drawn into sending our guys over there because the Russians didn't send their guys in Vietnam or Korea or anywhere else for that matter. They just sent their gear. So Russian aggression is the same as any other form of aggression. It is done by dictators. Vladimir Putin lives in a bubble where he is told what he wants to hear. He's been told that his military should make this into a two-day cakewalk. He was told that the Ukrainians would throw flowers in his, at, his, at the path of his soldiers. That's what he believed because that's all he's ever heard. And he invaded this nation. They decided to fight back. What history tells me is 
is that when you do not stop these people, they will not only keep going, they will become bolder and bolder and bolder. That's exactly what Hitler did. People say, Putin's not Hitler. Yes, he is. He's not Hitler ideologically, but in terms of his relationship with other nations, it's a, it's a one-to-one correspondence, right? Hitler does some minor thing. He demilitarizes the Rhineland, okay? So, so, so Putin pushes a couple of borders here and so on and so forth. Then he goes into, uh, annexes Austria, and Putin goes into Georgia. Then he takes the Sudetenland and then the rest of Czechoslovakia, so Putin goes into uh, Crimea. Then he goes into Poland, thinking Poland's not going to fight, but Poland decides to fight. The Allies come in on the side of Poland. Now we started World War II because we didn't stop him earlier, Hitler. That's the exact same thing happening in Ukraine, right? It's the exact same thing happening in Ukraine. It is not relevant to the security of the world whether or not Ukraine is a corrupt government the fact of the matter is the people are out there fighting for their country, and I respect that, and I admire that, and and I think they've done a heroic job, and I think we should arm them because it's in our interest to arm them. It's not in our interest to put boots on the ground there. I've never once advocated that, and if people have constantly said, oh, you send your guy, well, why don't you go? I've never been talking about going. I'm saying give them the weapons they need, like we did with the British at the beginning of World War II. <coughs> We weren't in the war in 1939, 1940. Churchill came to America basically on his hands and knees and begged us for weapons, including we, we got things like Bermuda and, and Bahamas and a bunch of other bases for 99 years because we gave them 50 obsolete destroyers that we were going to scrap anyway. That's how desperate they were. And, and Churchill came to the United States Congress and said, give us the tools and we will do the job. Okay. Okay, so that's what we did. What this invasion has done is shown how phenomenally corrupt and incompetent the Russian military is. And it has been an unmitigated catastrophe for them. People say, well, you, well NATO is encroaching on, on Russia. NATO is not encroaching on Russia. The countries that border Russia are now begging to be let into NATO so that the same thing doesn't happen to them. Finland and Sweden had stayed out of NATO since NATO had been around in 1946, I want to say. And now Sweden and Finland are, are applying for NATO membership because they saw what happened to Ukraine. This, this mindset, this Putin mindset is built into, not to the Russian people, but built into the kind of government that has always governed Russia. And I would declare myself a bit of an expert on this particular subject. How many of you know this? I do not know, but I will leave you with this. This will be the last thing I say on the subject, on this subject. Vladimir Lenin invented the Soviet system. From the beginning, it was about murder, lying, repression, and control. People say Stalin came in and ruined his workers' paradise. No, Lenin wrote the manual and Stalin followed the instructions. Lenin had nothing to do with people who's notoriously anti-human individual. He couldn't stand any kind of sounds in the Kremlin. And if a phone would ring, he'd lose his mind. If it was one or two degrees warmer or colder than 57 degrees, he would have, have raging fits. So Lenin goes to move into a, a, a private house in Gorky, relatively modest house in Gorky, and, and this super private guy has four bodyguards who are mostly outside. He has three servants in the house with him. It's Lenin, his wife, Krupskaya, his sister, Maria, and three servants, two secretaries and a cook, who live with Lenin for four or five years. 
Then, after Lenin dies, the cook, who's already shown that he's not going to poison the leader of the Soviet Union, gets hired by Stalin and is one of a handful of people that lives with Joseph Stalin for 20 years. So this cook is the only individual on planet Earth ever who lived with Lenin when Lenin was in power and lived with Stalin when Stalin was in power. He watched the Soviet Union from the moment it was born go from this agrarian nation to being a, a country that was hot on the heels of the moon race when he died, I want to say 67. This is the cook, okay? And that cook's name, who was the only guy who lived with Lenin and Stalin, was named uh, Spiridon Putin. He was Vladimir Putin's grandfather. So if you want to know what Vladimir Putin's mindset is, just look at what his grandfather told him during the 13 years that Putin and, and his grandfather were alive together. There is no more Soviet perspective on the Soviet Union than the one that's held by Vladimir Putin's grandfather, Spiridon. He is the Soviet Union. I'm not saying Russia's the Soviet Union, but I'm saying he is, and he's an odd mixture of the Soviet Union because when the Soviet Union fell, it was replaced by a kleptocracy. So the, th the way to think, look, Vladimir Putin tried to join the KGB in ninth, when, he was, when he was 16 years old, it was turned away, came back later, he sat in the Lubyanka, he was the head of the FSB, he was the head of the organization that killed 20 million of their own people over the course of the Soviet Union. He sat in the same chair as Yerzhinsky, Menzhinsky, Yagoda, Yezhov, Beria, and Dropov, and a few others. He sat in that same chair, made the same decisions as those guys. He is a communist and he is also a crook. And this guy has to be stopped. And I'm not talking about us going over there and stopping him. I'm saying we should arm the people who are fighting for their own country because they're hurting this country, which is not our friend, has never been our friend. And to say that Vladimir Putin is, a, is, is some kind of guardian of Western culture is a special kind of useful idiot, right? I'm sorry to, 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 to break this to you, He's not our friend. He is very much opposed to the same kind of woke garbage I'm opposed to, 100%. And he, and he is smart enough to know that he can ring Americans, conservative Americans' bells by saying, we just believe in, in, in Christianity and the family. That's not what they believe. But it's certainly true that they don't want this woke stuff. So yeah, you hear him talking about this woke stuff, and you see Putin mocking these, you know, seventh grade teachers or fourth grade teachers who are wearing beards and eyeshadow and lipstick and you think goddamn putin's on the right side of this he may in fact be on the right side of it he's certainly telling us what we want to hear but that's not relevant to the aggression this whole thing is very simple there's a boundary here's one country here's another there is a line this is the border of the country which way are the tanks going period okay period and when it's russian tanks then that tells me that this guy is guilty of the same kind of dictator mania that affected not only Hitler, Saddam Hussein, the exact same way, precisely the same way. We're going to invade Kuwait. Really, won't the Americans get upset about it? Nah, 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 they won't do anything. Americans won't do anything about that. You sure about that? Oh, yeah. All I've ever heard is that, is that our, our, our army is unbeatable and, and that the Americans are a paper tiger. That's what, that's what bin Laden believed. Bin Laden believed we were a paper tiger, said so himself. In a recruiting video to Al-Qaeda, he says, America's a paper tiger. Russia was a much tougher nut to crack. We kicked Russia out of Afghanistan. All you have to do is hit America once, and it's just going to collapse. Well, he was wrong, but that's what he believed. And this idea that you're, that you're in favor of, of, of a strong deterrent, meaning you want war, is a conveniently 
uninformed thing to say. Oh, you're in favor of, of you're in favor of, of of standing up to Putin. You want war? No, I'm in favor of standing up to Putin because I don't want war. And if we'd stood up to Putin in 2008, this would have been much easier. But it's not. And so the question is not whether we stop him here or not. The question is whether we stop him here or whether we stop him someplace else. That's it. That's what history tells me. History's never wrong before. I am willing to admit on a theoretical basis that this may not follow the same pattern as every other invasion and every other form of, of tyranny and, and dictatorship. I'm willing to admit that this may be a one-off that's completely different than that, but there's no evidence to support that and plenty of evidence to support the contrary opinion. So that's why I don't care whether, whether it's corrupt or not. I don't care. Let me close on this subject by saying this. There is no question that Biden is deeply involved with the Ukrainians and his corruption. And this president is the largest danger to the United States of America that I've seen in a long time. But these are separate issues, okay? They're separate issues. You don't solve the Biden issue by letting Putin take Ukraine. All you do is empower and encourage Russia to do more of this stuff. The way that you get rid of the Biden problem is by, is by having some kind of election victories here and going after him in Congress. We're starting to see some of that since we have the House now. I'm starting to see these guys asking these questions and getting these kind of answers. And, and this comes back to the punishment thing I said. I don't know how many of these Biden nominees or, or, or appointees sit there in front of Congress, which is doing its constitutional duty of congressional oversight, and watch them simply try and run out the clock. There should be contempt of Congress and perjury charges against all of these people, all of them. That's how you solve the Biden problem. And these things are not, it's not that they're not connected, it's just that they're not interdependent. You don't solve one by letting the other one go to hell. You just don't. I couldn't believe this was true when I heard it because, frankly, it seemed too good to be true. So I had to double check it and triple check it. But it's true. Listen carefully. When Donald Trump was president of the United States, we did not get into any foreign wars the first time that I think has ever happened, since, certainly since World War II, right? Nowhere, ever. Why? Why? Is it because, is it because Trump went to Putin and said, you know, Putin, we're, we're isolationists now. We're, we don't want anything to do with anything. You know what? If you, if you, we're, we're just on our own here, and, uh, and it's not our fight, and we're not the world's policemen, Vlad. So, no, that's not why we didn't have any wars with Russia, especially during Trump's uh, presidency. Because Donald Trump sat at a dinner with Vladimir Putin, and while they're eating their salad, he turned to him in the way only that Donald Trump can. And so, oh, by the way, Vladimir, the translator, be sure you get this right. If you go into Ukraine, I'm going to hit Moscow. He didn't say I'm going to retaliate. He didn't say I'm going to send a strongly worded letter. He didn't say there's going to be a military response. He said, I, meaning the United States, am going to hit Moscow, right? We're not going to play this game in Ukraine. We're not going to, we're not going to be trading javelins with you. If you go into Ukraine, I'm going to hit Moscow. Enjoy your salad. So what was the result of this? The result of this was Putin goes into Georgia in 2008, goes into Ukraine in 2013, doesn't go anywhere while Trump is president. And then when Trump is not president anymore, for reasons we all know, and, and Joe Biden decides he'd rather have a photo opportunity and, and millions and millions, billions of dollars of, of years lost, scores of American lives in, a, in this disgraceful withdrawal from Afghanistan. People falling out of airplanes is the most 
horrific, embarrassing, disgraceful debacle I've seen since the last helicopter out of Saigon, which was also a result of the Democrats, by the way. That wasn't the end of the Vietnam War. That was the end of the Vietnam peace. And so there you go, right? I don't make the rules. I don't, I don't make the rules. I don't, I don't like the options here. I don't. None of this is good. There's just bad and least bad. And so when I've got people that are wanting to fight for their country against this Russian aggressor that's run by a lunatic and they want weapons and not boots and we've got the weapons, that's cheap for us. That's inexpensive for us in terms of stopping our geopolitical adversary. It's been our geopolitical adversary since 1921, so since 1917, right? They cannot behave themselves. The only reason there is a NATO is because of Russian aggression. If this thing wouldn't have held together for 70 years if it hadn't been for the fact that Russia's constantly doing it. It's what they do. It's what they do. It's not the Russian people. It's the government. It's, I'll be even clearer, it's communism, right? It's communism that did this to them. Vladimir Putin was born in Leningrad. He spent his entire youth listening to his grandfather talk about a political system where people were nothing. They were just numbers that had to be murdered in order to maintain the terror state that allowed them to rule over people they didn't want anything to do with them. That's who he is. And he is behaving exactly like, exactly like a communist chairman of the, chairman of the Communist Party. What else is he going to do? That's all I have to say about it. Cody Mills. Hey, Bill, here's a fun one for you. Thoughts on the JFK and MLK assassinations. I feel like I've seen some compelling evidence pointing towards the CIA and FBI respectively, but Occam's razor and such, so let's hear your thoughts. I don't know anything about the Martin Luther King assassination. Just come out and say it. I don't know anything other than the official history. And here we go again. I do know a good deal about the John F. Kennedy assassination. Let me preface this by saying that since 2020, and especially since the, the 2020 election and COVID together, I have seen overwhelming evidence that our government is doing things that I simply thought were inconceivable prior to that. I mean, overwhelming evidence. The January 6th thing is just the tip of the iceberg. There's evidence that accrues on a daily basis that we, things that we knew three years ago. But when they locked this was, I think somebody said it was three years ago tonight, wasn't it? It was 2020, March 16th. When they locked this thing down, oh my God, we don't know what this is. By the middle of April, that was when we were supposed to be reaching peak COVID mortalities. And they had every single state plotted out to the day. This is the day California will reach its peak COVID mortality, so on and so on and so on. During that time here in California, I made a point of driving past a number of hospitals because I was expecting to see lines of ambulances around the block. I was expecting to see litters of, of patients on gurneys they're, because the hospital is too full. I wouldn't have been surprised if I'd seen people loading body bags, but we didn't see that. And when, and when the USS Comfort sails out of New York Harbor after having treated 17 or 20 or 30 people or whatever it was, because it wasn't needed, I said, okay. So everything since then has been a lie from the government. Yes, 100%. The, 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 the January 6th thing, 100%. A lot of people who've been, who've been blowing the whistle on things like the Victrola and blowing the whistle on, um, on, on Biden. Look, 
when somebody told me, when would this, certainly before Trump was president, certainly before Trump was president, they were saying, oh, you know, the, the Clintons have a long history of people committing suicide in their wake. I thought to myself, yeah, okay, you know, that's, that's within the realm of, of, of possibilities. It may be a little unlikely, but, you know, okay, people don't just go around murdering people at the top level of government, right? And I believed that until Jeffrey Epstein hung himself in prison. Hung himself in prison. And when Epstein was found dead and they asked, wasn't there a guard? No, there wasn't a guard. We didn't need a guard. He wasn't on suicide watch? No, no, no. Well, anybody else would have been on suicide? No, don't worry. We had video cameras on him the whole time. So if we'd seen him trying to hang himself, we'd just run in there and, and stop him. Okay, great. So can I see the video camera footage? Well, the camera's uh, burned out. Really? Yep. Burned out. When did it burn out? Oh, I don't know. A minute or two before he must have started hanging himself, I guess. Okay. Show me the burned out camera. Well, it started working again. This is the official story. I'm not making this up. Started working again. What? Yeah, it turned out it wasn't burned out. It just it just kind of went out for a while. Went out for how long? About 13 minutes. Is that about how long it would take to hang somebody, make sure they're dead, then get out of the room? Oh. Let me get back to you on that one, Senator. So once I saw a man murdered in front of my eyes in broad daylight because he had the only kind of evidence that could have brought down Bill and Hillary Clinton, namely underage sex with women, that is kryptonite to the progressive cause. There's no way to, there's no way to spin that around. So when Jeffrey Epstein hung himself in prison, I just said, I've just watched somebody murdered politically in front of my eyes and nobody's done a damn thing about it. Uh, and a number of the people that have been investigating um, various uh, injections uh, have also mysteriously died young. The people that made the documentary uh, died suddenly, and the one they made before that, which is even better, called um, The Greatest Reset, those guys are in hiding now. A number of the people in The Greatest Reset, which really, really, really shook me up. Young, youngish people, 45, 50 years old, appear to be in the prime of life, died within a few weeks of doing those interviews. So I believe, the I believe they're capable of anything. Now, with all of that said, so get my bona fides out there, right? I read, when I was much younger, I read Best Evidence, which was a book that basically claimed that Kennedy was shot from the front and that... Um, and that they had surgically altered him on Air Force One, flying from Love Field back to um, Andrews to make it look like he was shot from the back. Okay? Four, seven, I don't know, seven, eight hundred pages. And I'm, oh, my God, it's unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable. All this stuff. A page or two about Oswald. That's about it, right? Oh, he's the guy who they set up as the patsy. And then I read a book called Case Closed. Um, that's on the tip of my tongue. Gerald Posner. I got it before I found it. It just came back to me. Yeah, case closed, Lee Harvey Oswald and the assassination of JFK. Okay, so I read that after I'd read and believed all of this. Uh, I'm not going to call it conspiracy theory. Alternative explanations. I'll give you one example. I'll just give you one because one is all I really have. I'll give you two. 
I'll give you one because this is the only one I'm sure of from memory. The people who claim that it was not Lee Harvey Oswald, that there were other shooters in the Gravesy Knoll or whoever it was, you know, wherever they were, put aside whether it was Johnson or the CIA or the mob or whoever, right? The, the single most compelling piece of evidence for a second shooter is the so-called magic bullet. And when you see this ex explained, like if you saw the movie JFK, what you saw was, I'm looking at it from my, all right, let's do it this way. So, so let me make sure I can see this. Okay, so, yeah, so in the motorcade, this is the driver. This is John Connolly, governor of Texas. This is Kennedy. This is Jackie down here, right? Do you see that? Okay. Driver, Connolly, Jackie, uh, JFK. Given the wounds on Connolly, the bullet went through Connolly and struck Kennedy. When you see it portrayed, they say for this bullet to come, come through his wrist or this or whatever and bounce off, then the bullet has to do this, and then the bullet has to make this magic jump like this and then go through Kennedy. That's physically impossible. Therefore, Kennedy could not have been shot by Oswald alone. That's how the argument goes. Okay. However, what you find out when you really break down the evidence is that the, the, the limousine that they were sitting in is actually wider in the back than the front, which means Kennedy's actually off to a side, but much more importantly... Connolly was turning around when he was hit because the first shot didn't hit him. He was turning, he was in the act of turning around. So the, so the geometry completely changes. Now, whether the people who promote the magic bullet theory or know that or not is not something I have an answer to. But that is a straight line when you put Kennedy slightly off to the side and when you, when you have him turning. Um, and so there it is, right? There it is. In that book, there is a compelling explanation for everything. And furthermore, instead of simply making a two pages or five pages about Oswald, the book is mostly about Oswald. Um, I've personally seen reasonable evidence to suggest that the driver actually shot him from the front. Maybe this bothers me so much because I have spent so much time on every frame of the Zubruder film. Maybe that's why this is so alarming to me. I've talked about this before. Nobody believed me. Let me see if I can find it and I'll show it to you on video. This is not the Zubruder film, by the way. Give me a second. Hang on a second.
Sorry for the dead air. It's uh, hang on, this is not what I'm looking for. I just have to answer this. Let's see where it is. Oh, here it is. Hang on. Again, sorry about the dead air. All right, it's not very clear. I'll just tell you what I saw in the video of. I'll see if I can find it for next time. Basically, it's this is what it's um, comes down to. So the, the 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 single visual evidence is Kennedy gets shot and his head goes back, which is um, an indication that he's shot from the front. Right, head goes back. What they found was that when that when he was shot from behind, the amount of brain matter that was ejected from his skull, the mass of that, was greater than the impact vector of a bullet entering the skull. In other words, yes, the bullet entering the back of his skull will push his head forward, but it's entering a relatively small area, so there's a moment moment in terms of physics, moving his head forward, but the amount of brain material that's ejected is stronger than that actually moves his head back. I saw the video of somebody taking a watermelon. They stand in front of the watermelon. Let me get this right here. They shoot the watermelon, and the watermelon goes in the direction of the shot that fired it because it's blowing out enough watermelon to form a fort of a rocket. Now, I'm not going to make you read the book. It's just another question that I'm going to answer without reading the comments. So I don't want to get all wrapped up in this again today. Uh, I don't know anything about the Martin Luther King assassination. I have read in great detail and studied the Kennedy situation in great detail. And Gerald Posner's book to me has a perfectly logical explanation for everything. And by the way, Unlike every other book about the assassination, which basically says that, that Oswald is just some sort of patsy, Oswald defected to the Soviet Union. He went for political asylum. They wouldn't give it to him. He tried to kill himself by slitting his wrist in a hotel in, in Moscow. The Russians didn't want him. He said, I'm a Marine. They said, the Russian, the KGB said, well, if you're a Marine and you were a guard at the U.S. Embassy, we'd be very interested in you, but you're basically a radar operator from 
Okinawa. If you knew anything about the SR-71 flights, we might want to talk to you, but you don't. So back you go. So he slits his wrist in a, in a, in a Moscow hotel room, and now the Soviets have an international issue on their hands. There's a U.S. Marine has committed suicide in a Russian hotel. There's a summit coming up. They decide the guy's an obvious nutcase. We'll just be easier to let him in. So they do. So they so he becomes, they let him into the Soviet Union. He lives in the Soviet Union for four or five weeks or months. He is a uh, an international celebrity. He's an American who's gone to live in Russia. And when the excitement wears off and he's no longer a star, now he's stuck living in the Soviet Union, which sucks. So he already married um, Marina by this point they get on a plane to go back to Texas and he's telling her the whole time that when we get off of the plane in in Texas when we get back from the Soviet Union the ramp is going to be filled with reporters who are going to be lining up to ask me about my story and he gets there and there's nobody there his entire life is a history of a guy who who has been who has been desperate to show that he's more important than he really is he got the job at the Texas School Book Depository weeks if not months before the parade route was announced and when the parade route was announced lee harvey oswald is reading the papers and he realizes john kennedy's going to pass directly in front of me three days from now that to me is the simplest explanation for it and and like every other uh set of contested uh evidence what i find most compelling about this is that the people who are claiming it wasn't oswald cannot agree on who it was why is that it's the same thing with chemtrails, the same thing with 9-11 um, with being an inside job. No one can agree on who it was. Everybody just is sure that it's not what we all saw happen in front of our eyes. But if the evidence were overwhelming, then there would be overwhelming evidence that it was the mob, or it was Castro, or it was Johnson, or it was the CIA. But no two sources agree on that. The only people that are in agreement are the people who think that Lee Harvey Oswald shot John F. Kennedy from the corner of the texas school book depository i've stood in that place i've had people say it's a difficult shot it doesn't look like a difficult shot to me he's cars turning a corner it's barely moving and by the way when they say they tried to reproduce the shots just think about this is the kind of this is the kind of sloppy thinking that affects these kind of things so there are people who are saying well, look it's almost impossible right to hit him in the same place at the, at the base of the neck which made him go into this this um neurological reflex i've forgotten the name of it now if you try to hit him here like put a little dot right on a dummy here's a little dot where it goes in the shoulder here's a little dot where it enters the head they're saying it's virtually impossible to hit these two dots but that's not the point those two dots are where the shots landed it's not like they had to hit him there in order to kill him he didn't have two dots painted on him at the time that's just where you're, you're saying you have to recreate the shot that's insane. You just have to hit him. The idea that you have to put a bullet hole through where the bullet holes already were is nuts because the bullet holes went where they went. This kind of thing. So I have not seen anything uh, that is counterindicating that. And for most of my life, I did not believe the government was capable of such a thing. But now I believe that they are. But just because I believe that the government is capable of such a thing doesn't mean that that's what happened. This is what this is the burden of critical thinking. You know, you don't get to be, you get to have everybody hate you. That's what it comes down to. Everybody hates you. By the way, many people don't know this. 
Lee Harvey Oswald would sit out on his porch in his underwear months before the months months not only months before the assassination, months before the parade route was announced, months before the trip to Dallas was announced. Lee Harvey Oswald was handing out Fair Play for Cuba stickers, uh, uh, pamphlets. There's photos of him doing that. There's photos of him holding a sign calling Fair Play for Cuba because he's a freaking communist sympathizer. But he sat outside on his porch in his underwear and did nothing but dry cycle the bolt on the Manlicker Carcano. That's all he did for hours and hours and hours a day for weeks and weeks. Just dry cycled it, dry cycled it, dry cycled it. And Lee Harvey Oswald had previously taken a shot uh, General Walker, who was a conservative Texas politician, Oswald shot at him with the same rifle, would have hit him, except it hit the wooden pane, the wooden uh, structure between the individual glass planes, deflected. So he already took a shot at a guy. Not many people know that, but, you know, it's kind of an odd thing to do for your patsy, don't you think? If you want a guy who's, like, crystal clear and, you know, it's kind of, they didn't know about this until after the assassination, until after he was dead. But it's kind of an odd thing to do, right? Just go and start shooting somebody just for fun, trying to assassinate somebody just to be a guy. The less you hear about Lee Harvey Oswald, the more you believe somebody else did it. The more you hear about Lee Harvey Oswald, the less you believe that somebody else did it. Uh, Troy Stevens, it's actually helpful for me not to read the comments because I just it just doesn't do any good. This is what I think. This is what I believe. You're welcome to believe it or not. I, I don't care. Uh, have you seen Dave Rubin's clip of Biden's FAA administrator, Phil Washington, bombing basic aviation questions, digging deeper into why this is essential foundational stuff for a qualified candidate to know would make a great right angle? It might make a great firewall, too, actually, now that you mention it. I never thought about that. Those of you not familiar with it, the Biden administration has put up another top quality person, top person, uh, to be the head of the Federal Aviation Administration. He's a political appointee, black gentleman who uh, knows nothing about airplanes, never been a pilot, couldn't answer any of the fundamental questions that any that I and seven or eight or ten million other American citizens had to answer in order to get our basic private pilot's license. Right? He's unaware of any of it. Absolutely unaware of it. Um, I suspect there's a reason why he was nominated, but it's certainly not due to his aviation experience. He has a deer-in-the-headlight look, and basically what his argument was, was that, well, I'm, I'm familiar with how the government works, and I, I can pick this up pretty fast. And one of the people questioning him said, I don't know if being the head of the FAA is, is the kind of thing we want for on-the-job training. You know, Seems to me like... Maybe you ought to know a little bit about airplanes before you do that. I don't know what the outcome will be if he's if he's uh, if he's confirmed. Then prepare for prepare for the worst. Um, so um, in any sane society, he would never have been nominated, and this comes back again to punishment. Right? What has been the consequences for the nomination? Look, what when Justice when when Joe Biden nominated Justice Jackson, is it Jackson Lee? I honestly don't remember. I blocked it out. 
you can argue whether she's qualified or not. I didn't think she was qualified. I didn't think that Kagan was qualified. Sotomayor a little a little better, but I thought she was biased. But, but put all that aside, right? Let's just say for the sake of the argument that, that Jackson, Jackson Lee, was it right? Is it, think of the right, Sheila, Sheila Jackson Lee? Let's just say that she's perfectly qualified. Let's say that she is on the level of, um, oh, I don't know, a Bork, let's say. Um, that kind of qualified. She's not, but let's just say that she is. We are living in an era now where where uh, gender issues have gone completely insane. This is what I was thinking. I'd write the first firewall uh, post Daily Wire Death March firewall. I was going to call it breaking the truth because that's what they're trying to do with this with this entire transgender movement. They're trying to break Brown Jackson, not Dr not Jackson Lee. Thank you. Um, they're trying to break the truth. They're taking the single most obvious, undeniable biological fact known to... It is simply the most obvious biological fact that you can make. It, 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 it is essentially the only thing in biology that is binary, male or female. There's variations in height, there's variations in speed, intelligence, skin color, all of it. But you're either male or female. It is the most binary thing there is, and they're trying to convince you that it's not binary. They're trying to break the idea of the truth, right? So this is a hot issue now. So they ask the nominee, this is why she shouldn't have been confirmed. I don't think, I think the Constitution is right. Advice and consent is not the same thing as you have to convince us, right? It's the president's prerogative. That's how the Constitution's structured. But... If she's unqualified, fine. My my rules tell me he's the president. If we don't want liberal uh, justices, maybe we shouldn't elect uh, liberal presidents, and I don't think we did. But when they ask her, what is a woman? And she says, I'm not a biologist. Then she's automatically rejected because she's lying she's lying under oath she is perjuring herself and it's obvious that she's perjuring herself it's not a question of me liking her policies or not right i don't get to pick that's how the constitution works if i was a if i was a senator and i believe in the system and i believe in the inherent wisdom of the system my feelings would say, I don't like this person. I think she's bad for the country, but I have no reason to disqualify her. This is, how, this is my job. But when she says, I'm not a biologist, I cannot answer the question of what a woman is, she is lying. She's lying. And everybody knows she's lying. And the reason she's lying is because her politics will not allow her to tell the truth. Forget about what the politics are. If you've got a person who is who is willing to lie because they don't like what it says about them, and it's this, it's this is this is the most bald-faced lie I think I've ever seen, ever, ever, ever delivered in congressional testimony, ever. Well, I'm not a I'm not a biologist, and by the way, that's that's actually like double. Weasley. It's not only not answering, it's not only lying about the answer, it's saying, 
it's dodging the question, right? It's dodging the question. We're getting a bunch of these in the comments. They're exactly right. Argros says, what is water? I don't know. I'm not a fish. If somebody asks me, what is a woman? I've been watching this argument go on long enough. I'm going to say, a woman is a human female, which is defined by the presence of two X chromosomes. The male, human female, is two X chromosomes. Human male has XY chromosomes. A female, a woman, is a human individual with two X chromosomes in every goddamn cell of her body. That's what a woman is, period. Not going to get into the uterus thing because then people can say, oh, well, there are women who have hysterectomies. Are you saying that they're not women anymore? Nope. Nope. Not going down that road. Not going to do it. What about what about women that don't have periods? What about men that do have periods? Nope. 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 That's not it. We're going to stand here. X and X is a woman. X and Y is a male. Now, if you could show me, if you could show me a human individual had two Y chromosomes, then, then I would, I would completely believe you, right? XX, XY, it's a simple grid, right? XX, YX, XY, YY. There are no YYs. It's not viable. It doesn't happen. So there are only two sexes. I'm even willing to say gender is something that is that is you know that is a choice and a preference. That's fine, but a woman is a person with two X chromosomes. Period. Period, and that is where you—that's the hill you die on, right there, right? Because when you listen to these lunatics talking, they'll say, "Well, cis women," which is an invented term, by the way. You know why the, you know why they refer to women as cis women or men as cis men. The reason they've come up with that term is because now it's not a question of men and women. Now it's a question of cis and, and trans. And that means they're more or less equal, right? There are trans people, there are cis people. No, no. There are women and there are men. Not that there are cis women and trans women. There's no such thing as a cis woman. There's no such thing as a trans woman either. And by the way, I mentioned this before. One of my favorite channels now is called, on YouTube, is called The Offensive Tranny. It's done by, I'm going to, certainly going to give them the respect that I believe they've earned. It's done by a young man, biological female, who is a transsexual man. And I'm going there. I'm fine with this because I'm not a dick about these things. And the reason I'm willing to say that this is a trans man is because the first thing I ever heard this individual say was, I am a trans person. I am a biological female. I was born female. I will always be a female. I have a mental illness called gender dysphoria that makes it exceedingly difficult for me to see a female reflection in the mirror. And I have spent years trying to pass as a man. And that's what a transsexual is. And this, and this person's name is Marcus says, I didn't forget about going to, to forget about going into a woman's restroom with a beard and eyeshadow on, right? Marcus said, I spent two or three years not going to any public restrooms because I didn't want to make anybody uncomfortable. I was in the middle of this transition and I didn't go into men's restrooms until I could walk into a male restroom without anybody having a second thought about it. It's a kind of a, you know, it's a kind of a little bit of a soft looking guy, right? That's an actual transsexual. These people 
like Jeffrey Marsh, these people are transvestites. They're men that like to dress up like women. They're they're in woman face. You see these you see these creatures with its beards and eyeshadow and lipstick, and they say I'm transsexual. You're not a transsexual. Transsexuals don't want to be seen as 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 this hybrid, right? They want to pass. Transsexual women, people who are born biological males, want to be treated as females. And if somebody thinks that they're looking kind of male, they're not, they're not trying hard enough. So for this woman to say, for this, for this, um, this uh, justice now, sitting justice of the Supreme Court to say, I'm not, a, I'm not a biologist. I can't define what a woman is. Okay, you're, you're lying about your politics and you're under oath. That's perjury. Not only are you not going to get on the Supreme Court, we're going to press charges for perjury because we know that you know what a woman is. We know that you know, and you just lied to us under oath. Some men have an extra why? I don't know. Uh, Non-binary, just attention-seeking, non-conformist, as Marisha Dart. That's right. It's a... Look... There's been a fair amount of pushback against this, and the trans people are now screaming bloody murder. And they're needless to say, they're talking about transphobia and all the rest of it. And they're saying some people, those evil conservatives, are accusing us of this, uh, of this being some kind of fashion trend. Trans kids are not a fashion trend. It's a status symbol. It's very different than a than a fashion trend. A status symbol is what it is. It's a status symbol for the parents, mostly. They're the ones that are behind most of this. It's a status symbol for the parents, and it's a status symbol for the individuals. In a society where they have been educated, educated to believe that the entire society is a... This is the essence of what critical theory is. This is the Frankfurt School. This goes back to 1920 at the Institute of Marxism in Frankfurt. Divide the country up into victim classes. Okay, what do you do if you're not black or brown or a woman? What do you do? What do you do if you're a normal white person? How can you be a victim then? Well, I could be a transsexual. Yeah. Okay, how does that work? I'm an oppressed minority. I'm oppressed by the, by the, um, by the transphobic, formerly homophobic middle, which must be destroyed because... Um, because of because uh, transphobia is also based on white supremacy. Let's check that in there too. Is cis man derogatory? I consider cis man to be an extraordinarily derogatory term, just like cis women. It doesn't exist. It's a made up word. You want to call me a cis man? I'll call you a play woman. You want to play that game? That's fine with me. The um, they're trying to break the truth, and they're not having the success they want. And here's the thing that I am seeing with Dylan Mulvaney, for those of you up on this whole thing. So Jeffrey Marsh is this complete... A Muslim woman who had a comedy channel on YouTube took some of... Jeffrey Marsh is a so-called transsexual who does not look like a woman, doesn't look like a man, doesn't look like a human being, really. If you know who Jeffrey Marsh is... If I if I had been a casting director and I brought Jeffrey Marsh in to play the Joker in the in the um, in that second Batman movie, Heath Ledger got the part. 
If I brought him in to play that role, they would have thrown me out of the room. They would have said, that's just too on the nose, man. That's just too on the nose. Um, so this Muslim woman took a look. This guy, Jeffrey, has a huge following on TikTok and YouTube. This Muslim woman called him out. The left-wingers, not just the trans, not just the trans people, but the but the woke left-wingers, the self-hating white people, went after this Muslim woman, uh, vandalized her car, and when she said, "I'm not going to let that stop me," then they started calling in death threats and death threats that meant, "I know who your children are. I know what their names are. I know you pick up this one at this location at this time. I know you pick up that one at that location at that time. We're going to kill them both." And so this woman then issued a tearful apology. She begged uh, uh, Jeffrey March to forgive her. She begged the, 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 mo the mob that was after her to please, please, please leave her children alone. And that's what happened. Okay. That's Jeffrey Marsh. Dylan Mulvaney is the guy who uh, I'm gonna gonna suffer this. I don't care anymore. Dylan, I, I just don't care anymore. Dylan, Dylan Mulvaney is the guy who had the uh, the operation, who now um, uh, I just saw a comment here from Moon Nugget uh, say, "Pay bill for new material." He's repeating himself a lot. Maybe you could give me different questions. Uh, you know, maybe I have to keep mansplaining this because people keep asking me the same questions. So, yeah, if you want to pay me for new content, I'd appreciate that. Um, Dylan Mulvaney is the one who did, oh, I'm day six of girlhood and does this whole routine like women are just these little cartoon figures. And now what's happening is Dylan Mulvaney, who is probably the most famous trans person ever and who has had a lot of work done, can't find a date. And she's upset about this. And a lot of trans people are upset about the fact that they can't find dates. They're upset about the fact that, um, that straight men do not want to date them. And what's really interesting about that is they seem to have actually believed that they could talk their way out of this one like they've talked their way out of everything else. All they have to do is throw fog around enough and people will come around. You see this all the time now, all the time. You'll see these so-called trans kids saying, if you're not willing to date me, then you're transphobic. If you're not willing to date a woman with a penis, then you're, you're transphobic. I hear that and say, sign me up, where's the list? I'll sign that list like John Hancock. Yeah. And and this is the thing that's actually the most interesting part of this. They are actually quite astonished by this, genuinely astonished by this, because they've always thought that they could argue their way, intellectualize their way out of anything. And they're finding that even the most famous and, you know, for one of the least unusual-looking uh, trans people, Dylan, uh, 
can't get a date and we'll never get a date. And all of these people are running into the fact that they actually believe that by having the hormones in the surgery, it's not that they look like women, they become women. They believe this. They believe it to be true. It's magical thinking. And so since I'm a woman now, I should be able to have men date me just like they date any other women. And when they find that the men are a little reluctant to date women that have penises and so on, they're not only angry, they're astonished. And um, they're not going to talk their way out of this one. It's not going to... It's not going to be something you can talk you into, right? Say all you want to. Well, then you're transphobic. Okay. That means you're a white supremacist. I guess I must be. I don't know what it has to do with you and me, Dylan, whether you're whiter than I am. But okay, sure. If it's about if it's about white supremacy, that's fine too. Throw, throw in whatever you want to. I don't care. It's not going to change my mind. It's not going to happen ever, ever. It's not going to happen ever. And they are starting to hit that wall, right? They're starting to hit that wall, and and they don't know what to do. And um, and this is our ultimate. This is our. This is our. This is our 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 redoubt, right? This is our fortress. Reality is is our reality is the is the final defensive line that is extraordinarily well fortified, and this is where we fall back to, and this is a, this is where we, we make our last stand because they they don't get past that line, nothing they cannot get past this line, the 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 the, the wall of reality is insurmountable. It is it is a it is an unbreachable defense, and so. We can be polite and we can have discussions and all this other stuff. And they can shut us up too. I mean, they can take us off off of YouTube. They can take us off to camp. All of that can happen. But they cannot get men to date trans women, period. Blake says, uh, trans people are largely gay folks who are seeking to be more attractive to the opposite sex. And truly trans people are not the loud ones in the cultural conversation. That's exactly right. That's what I was saying about this, why I respect this person with the offensive training. I can't, re I cannot recommend this channel highly enough, really. And the reason I, I, I think so highly of this Marcus person is because number one, it's the actual truth. And number two, he seems very happy. He's not like one of these people that are. He doesn't strike me as mentally ill at all. And the reason I know he's not mentally ill is because he admits he has a mental illness. I know that sounds paradoxical, but it's like, yes, yes. Uh, Jonathan Arnold for Super, Super Chat says leftists think they can pontificate their reality. That's for you. What? Thank you for what you do, Bill. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, I'm going to do this first part. I was going to be talking you insane, I think, or breaking the truth, one or the other. Uh, and then Lizzie Case says, uh, why do you think we become a society of enablers at the expense of reality? Marcus's channel is called The Offensive Tranny. And Marcus, I'm not like super up on the background, but I've seen a number of videos. Um... Marcus, I think, was originally Danish, was a leader, a leader in like the Danish trans movement before this thing became a big deal because, you know, he's an actual transsexual. 
And once he started coming out against the trans community for this insanity, needless to say, like any other leftist, he was, there's a feeding frenzy begins and it's like putting a rat in, you know, river full of piranhas, just tore him apart. But when Steve Whoop gets the, wins the internet for the day in YouTube chat, Steve Whoop just wrote, reality died with moral relativism. Yes, the truth died with moral relativism. You know when the truth died? I'll tell you when the truth died. The idea of truth died when you hear, started hearing progressives say, well, my truth, that may be your truth, but my truth is, this is my truth. Be, you hear this all the time, this is my truth. You don't have your own truth. You have your own interpretation of truth, and I'm willing to say that everybody has an interpretation of the truth, you know, three sides to any story, your side, my side, and the, and the truth, but there is a truth. Something actually did happen, right? I mean, there was something that actually physically happened. If there had been cameras there, you could watch it, assuming it wasn't somebody related to the Clintons or something. Then you can say, this is the truth. Now we can discuss about what your interpretation of it is or what your opinion of it is or what filter you look at it through or whatever. But nevertheless, this is the truth. And once people started saying, well, that's your truth, we should have just stopped it right there. No. What you're saying is, that's my opinion. And that's okay to say that's my opinion, but you don't get to say that's my truth. There is a truth. And one of the truths is every human being walking this earth has either XX or XY chromosomes, period, if you'll pardon the expression. Um, and so these people think, you know, if I take, I was thinking about this last night because I'm, I'm on this track a lot. You'll hear these trans men swearing. This is the latest thing. It's changing by the week of the month. The, 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 um, uh, the cause du jour is um, is trans trans women having periods. Uh, biological males who have transitioned to being females are now claiming that they have periods and that their periods are just as authentic as that of cis women. You see, there's only there's two kinds of women. You see, there's cis women and there's trans women. That's why the word cis was invented because now there's not men and women. There's two kinds of men and there's two kinds of women. There's cis women and trans women, equally valid, right? So the trans women are saying that we have periods too. The only difference is, is that we don't bleed because we don't have a uterus. But we have periods too because I get depressed and I get emotional and all these other things. So that who are we to say that's not a woman? And who are we to say that this person who's grown up a male is able to lecture women on what women really are? Marcus is a sane individual. Marcus will say something like, you know, well, this, I, I can't tell you what men think. I, I'm a biological female. I, I grew up a female. And furthermore, while my mental illness makes it exceedingly uncomfortable to see a female reflection, and while I do my best to be as male as possible and to pass as being male, I can't know what it's like to be a male. I didn't grow up a male, and I'm not a male now. That's why I love this guy. That's why I love him, because he's honest, and he's, and he's brave, and he's not nuts. And people like that should be allowed to live in peace. And by the way, people like that do live in peace. No one is complaining. There, you, and, you and I have probably been in restrooms, and I'm speaking more to the women here than the men, you have probably been in, in fact, I'm almost virtually certain that you have been in restrooms with women who were actual born biological males and you didn't know it and therefore it didn't matter, right? 
That's what actual transsexuals are, and that's what they want. When you see people like like Jeffrey Marsh with with this stubble and then this you know like emerald green eyeshadow and lipstick, that's not a transsexual. That's a transvestite. That's a person. It's a male dressing up like a woman. Okay, I don't have any problem with that. It's not my business. I don't care. I don't care. I don't even care if you do it so much in public. I do care if you do it around children, but I don't care. What I do care about is your insistence that I agree with your insanity. That's where I'm getting off the train. And I started talking about this two, three years ago only because I never thought it would get to this point. I have uh, an Uncle Bob. I don't really, but let's just say I did. And Uncle Bob tells me I'm, I'm, uh, I've always hated being a male. I want you to call me Aunt Betty comes to a Thanksgiving in a wig, and he's wearing lipstick. I love Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob's been a part of my life, been there, showed me how to set up a telescope, help me launch rockets. I'm happy to say, okay, Aunt Betty, that's fine with me. Right? No skin off my nose. This is what the trans people say. What difference does it make to you? It doesn't. It doesn't really make any difference to me at all. I'm willing to do that. But when Uncle Bob starts saying, and Bill, now you have to agree that I'm a woman. You have to agree that I am a biological woman. And I want to say, Uncle Bob, uh, no. This isn't about you anymore. This isn't about family anymore. It's not even about sex anymore or gender. Now it's about reality. Now it's about truth. It's about destroying the truth, destroying the entire idea of the truth. And the reason they're picking this one is because, not because it's the easiest case to make, but because it's the hardest case to make. If they can break the truth over something this obvious, then everything downstream of this is easy, right? Everything about this is easy. Now, Argros is something that has a lot of merit, and, I, and, I, and I've been thinking more about this lately. Argros said, I love Uncle Bob. That's why I won't feed his delusion. That is an actually interesting point. And I began to think about this before you mentioned it, but I thought, you know, maybe me calling Matt Betty is not helping him. But in any event, to say that the, the point I'm trying to get at is I don't care. It doesn't bother me that you're, that you're trans. It's none of my business. I don't care. But when you make me, in, when you insist that I agree with you on things that I know to be false, I'm off that train. And the more you push it, the more I'm going to push back. I know what you want to believe, but that doesn't make it true. And I know you're very upset that you don't get what you want, but I don't get what I want either. Nobody gets what they want. Life isn't a... It's an, it's, Life is about getting as close to what you want as you can. And most of the time, that's more than good enough. It's not lost on anybody by this point to know that I wanted to be a fighter pilot, but I couldn't be because my vision was soft. In one eye, it was soft. I didn't ask the Air Force to lower the standards. I didn't complain. It was unfair to me. It's just the way it went. I didn't have the vision to be a fighter pilot and go to the Air Force Academy. There are people who really love basketball and they're not tall enough to play in the NBA. There are people who still love um, the idea of being a jockey and they're six foot. They will never be jockeys. But this is my point. The six foot tall person will never be a jockey, but that doesn't mean he can't ride a horse. The five foot six guy who wants to be an NBA player will never play in the NBA, but it doesn't mean he can't play basketball. And I don't get to be a fighter pilot, but it doesn't mean that I don't get to fly long easies and, and experimental airplanes or or an L-39 for that, exa for example. It's probably 
300, $350,000 airplane. It's a jet trainer. It's damn near as good, right? I can do that. I've taken a ride in, in the back seat of those. That's close enough, man, close enough. But you don't get what you want. And when I think of people like Marcus on that channel, I think Marcus wasn't happy being a woman. Marcus probably would have been happier being born a man. If Marcus had been born a man, we wouldn't heard of Marcus and would have just been another man. But that can't happen. And so Marcus is realistic enough to realize I'm not going to get what I want. So how close can I get? I can get close enough so that I look like a man in the reflection. I get close enough so that people call me sir and get close enough to walk into men's restroom without anybody looking, without causing any damage. I get 90% of what I want. But I can't get all of it. Nobody can get all of it. Nobody gets what they want. People just get close to what they want. And, um, and that's it. Uh, Woody Fool, a friend Woody Fool says, when did reality stop mattering? R reality stopped mattering when you no longer needed to be connected to reality to survive. Reality is a luxury belief now. It's not a luxury belief if you are a farmer. Uh, and it's not a luxury belief if you're a pioneer. It's a luxury belief for mil probably billions, yeah, certainly billions of people. It's a luxury belief because you don't need to be connected to reality to survive in Western civilization today. And since you don't need to, then you can have whatever flights of fancy you want to make you feel better, and uh, and then this becomes law. But this is um, this is this is the wall. This is the reality wall. This is our ultimate readout, uh, our, our fortress, because liberal women who vote for Joe Biden, and Joe Biden is passing legis signing legislation that refers to people with uteruses and chest feeders. Well, the women who are voting for him don't like that much, and I don't blame them one bit. You're not a chest feeder, you know. You're an actual woman, and this is what this is what the John Frost brings up: this the dialectic destroyed reality. Yes, what these people are doing is they're doing the same thing that Lenin and the communists tried to do. They're trying to define. They're trying to make reality fit their theory rather than their theory fit reality. In fact, I never really quite thought of it quite that simply before. That's really what it comes down to. They have an emotional attraction to the theory. Lenin says, I, when, I first read Mar when I first read Marx, I loved it. I had a romantic love for Marxism. So Lenin has this emotional response to a theory. And if he has to kill 20 million people to fit, to, to, to break reality so that it will fit into his theory, that's what he'll do. Most people would look at what reality is and say, well, my theory is incorrect. I have a better theory. But that's not how these people think. It's, it, see, that's it. Now I'm really onto something here. That's what it comes down to. It's narcissism and it's entitlement. It's like, I want this, so I must have it. Well, you can't have it. Well, I will have it. If I have to kill everybody, I'll have it, damn it. I will continue to kill people until police, I will kill as many people as I need to of starvation in order for them to recognize that this is the best way to live, according to Karl Marx. And if I have to imprison or kill anybody who disagrees with me, I'll keep doing that until somebody says, you are a woman. I, I was completely wrong. You really are. No, it's not going to work like that. Not going to work like that. And I'll tell you who one of the, one of the major, major, what is the word I'm looking for for this person? 
underfeerer strikes me as appropriate is Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert He's a pimp. I disagree with Bill Maher on a lot of things, but Bill Maher, it's possible to get Bill Maher's attention. Reality can knock Bill Maher in the head, and Bill Maher will go, what was that? Stephen Colbert gets knocked in the head by reality. He's simply, it's not relevant. That little musical number he did about the, um, the uh, vaccinations? Okay. Okay, Stephen, we'll see. Anyway, let's see what else we have. His name is Stephen Colbert. It's Colbert, right? No, it's certainly Colbert. It's the Colbert Report. Get it? Yeah, Marisha said he's not a um, he's not a pimp. He's a whore. He is. I hope Col I hope Stephen Colbert lives long enough to fully appreciate the amount of damage that he's done. All right, let's see what else we got here. Roadrider. Bill Andrew Breitbart's 2012 CPAC speech, he tried to talk about the Frankfurt School, but being Andrew, he kind of butchered the message. You at nearly the same time had done your excellent afterburn on the origins of political correctness. The question, did you teach Andrew about the Frankfurt School? Did he teach you, or did you both learn independently? Uh, I, I actually taught him about it, I think, as I recall. Um, when I met Andrew Breitbart in 2000, and at the very end of 2000, December, December of 17th of 2007, Breitbart's whole thing was Hollywood. He'd written, um, was it Hollywood Babylon? Uh, and he had just started Big Hollywood. So Breitbart's whole thing was watching celebrities prostitute themselves for liberal causes. Um, I, did not, I did not invent the Frankfurt School theory, obviously. I saw a video about the Frankfurt School. It was a 20, 30, 40-minute video about the Frankfurt School, and I was able to get that down to some sort of um, simplified fashion. That's probably the thing I do well, I guess. That's probably the one thing I do well is um, just smart enough to be able to get my head around some of these ideas and I can strip away the um, uh, the chaff and the filler. Just get down to the nubbin. That's another thing about intellectuals, by the way. People like Colbert and all of, all the rest of these progressives, all the people are trying to intellectualize their say, their way out of I'm a woman I'm not you know all this stuff. They always try to complicate things. The more complicated they make it, the more successful they can argue it. I remember during the Rodney King trials, um, and they were showing the the, the defense, the uh, attorneys for the policemen. Um, this is in Simi Valley. We're showing the, the, the footage of the beating, and they never showed it in real time. What they would do is they say, okay, go to four, uh, frame 422, and then they'd advance to 422. And they say, okay, run at 410 frames. And you'd see um, you'd see him come up, you know, like, like this. And say, okay, so you can see that he's raising his shoulder here, right? He's running again. He's raising his shoulder, see? That means he's getting back up again. He's presenting a threat to the, to the officers. He's, 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 he's doing this. They had a bunch of these kind of things where if you look at them in slow motion, frame by frame, this is aggressive posture, this is aggressive posture, this is this, this is that. And that's fine, but when you look at the thing in real time, it's four policemen beating the hell out of a guy with a stick. 
I understand he ran from the police. I understand he was filled with drugs, all of that. But he was down on the ground, and they were simply just beating the living daylights out of the guy. And um, and my point is, at that point, somewhere in there who was doing the commentary said that a good lawyer can convince you that an elephant can ca- can hang off the edge of a cliff with his tail tied to a daisy. I never forgot that. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. That's exactly how it works. It's how it works with the trans things, how it works with all of this stuff. A good lawyer can convince you that an elephant can hang off the edge of a cliff with his tail tied to a daisy. And the way they do that is you add as many steps as you possibly can so that you're hiding the miracle, right? This, 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 and then a miracle happens, then this, 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 and this. So they, they just, it was a line in JFK, was it? I didn't, I didn't realize that. I love the line. Um, so this is what, you know, this is what all of this is about, is obscuring things. It's about, it's about making things so complex that you can't see where, where, where is, the, there's a, if A then B, right, if you just present this, uh, a man can become a woman. Well, that's obviously not true. So then they start dicing it and dicing it and dicing it and dicing it and dicing it. And when they finally dice it enough, you got step 37 and somewhere between step 14 and 15 is where the actual disconnect comes. But it's much harder to find that way than if it's just A or B. Um, and that's what that's what they do. They, they, they complicate and intellectualize things so to, to cover up where the break from the truth is. And reason I bring that up is because making something complicated is what midwits think is intelligent. That's what that's what people who are trying to get on Island 120 think. You know, these people with an IQ of 100, 103, maybe 108, something like that, whatever. Um, they try to sound like they're real smart by making things complex. They think that the more complex they get, the smarter they are. And it's just the opposite. That's why I despise intellectuals. Lizzie K for another super chat. Thank you, Lizzie. I wish intellectuals would actually be intellectual. Yeah, that's a thought. I think my college year was the least, the last one where philosophy where the philosophy professor taught moral relativism as a concept, but explained why the idea was bunk. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when you li- the, you really want to get it, I'm going to see if I can find an example. When you listen to um, woke college professors. These are the masters. Let's see if we can find a good example. I used to be able to, spon- I, if I was in slightly fresher mode, I could actually do this spontaneously. Um, one second. You get the idea, right? It, it you'll see you'll see you know. I'm not in top form here at the moment, but you'll see a paper that will say um, political opposition to Roe v. Wade in the early 
21st century colon, an analysis of how white supremacy and colonialism produces a matrix which redefines sexuality in such a way as to allow a smaller group of, of oppressors to exert their uh, moral authority and turn that into legal authority in order to suppress and, and, uh, and sublimate and eventually destroy uh, least, less protected classes of individuals who nevertheless have every moral right to their out, particular outlook, but who are constantly marginalized as an uh, ongoing attempt in the perpetuation of the power structure, which... Okay. I can't stand them. All right, let's do a couple more. Then this boy's got some editing to do. By the way, uh, I don't want anybody. Oh, and thank you. Uh, oh, and there was more. There was a very kind a road writer I went on and said, uh, about your hard work on the Empire of Terror, you remind me in an odd way of that little filthy. Yeah, I've mentioned this before. Thank you. Of that little filthy, starving, scared, in pain, feces covered child from Omelas. It's because most of those adjectives apply directly to me. Uh, after virtually living. With this topic 24-7, reading, researching, writing, editing, and speaking 80,000 words on camera about the terrors of Lenin, Stalin, and all the rest for months and months, perhaps a year, you have undoubtedly suffered in doing so, yet the rest of us can go on with our lives never thinking about these horrid details, but just waiting for you to bring them for, to us. Thank you for all your do doesn't seem enough. Well, it's more than enough, Road Rider. It's comments like that that, that, uh, that take the pain away. Uh, and, and, and it's comments like that that hose off the feces. Uh, interesting that you bring that point up. Um, I was talking, the, the crew I worked with on this shoot, I had never worked with them before. Uh, they were absolutely extraordinary. Just terrific. Terrific. Thank you again for all the kind words from everybody. And we were talking about the structure of the Soviet Union. Actually, come to think of it, I got there on Monday night. I got a chance to hang out with my old friend Jeremy Boring for about 30 minutes on Tuesday morning before he went off to England. He's now casting for um, Pendragon. They're doing an Arthurian TV series over there. He he's, was gone for about 10 days to do the casting. Then they're going to go back and they're going to spend six months there and shoot the thing. Um, while I was sitting with him in the Daily Wire building, he, somehow or another, the subject got on something or other, and he brought up a video of this particularly loathsome guy, who is the guy who is young white kid who's now like a, apparently a spokesman for the Nazis, and he was the guy who uh, Kanye West got Trump to sit down at dinner with, um, uh, what's his name? Uh... He doesn't strike me as a particularly pleasant person, but he was on um, Pearl. Uh, Pearl had him on the show. And Pearl is great when it comes to talking about men's issues and stuff, but she's not so good with this kind of thing. Uh, not David Hogg. Is it um, Fuentes? That sounds right. Nick Fuentes. That's him. Thank you. So he showed me um, he showed me uh, an interview 
from Nick Fuentes being interviewed on uh, by Pearl. And he was talking about how great the Soviet system was uh, and how it turned backward agrarian Russia into a nuclear superpower that nearly won the race to the moon. And Pearl said, yeah, but wasn't there some kind of genocide or something like that? And he did what all theoreticians do. Well, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not, you know, how big it was or how much of it happened. And, you know, one of the lines I like very much in this series, it's one of the last lines in the series, final episode with me just doing my closing arguments. I make this whole case and then I say, now attacks against this video series people attacking it will say something along the lines of, oh, he said that 200,000 people died here, but it turns out it was only 35,000. And I said, that's what communism will do to you. It'll make you say things that when you're talking about mass murder, it'll make you say things like only 35,000 people. So there's that. But more to the point, this douchebag, this walking uh, condensation of matter in the shape of a human being um, is essentially making the case that if you have to kill a few people or a few dozen or a few hundred or a few thousand or a few million in order to get into a perfect society, then that's worth it. This is precisely what Lenin thought, precisely what Stalin thought, precisely what Hitler thought, what all of these people think. It's what progressives think. If we have to murder everybody that, we, that gets in our way in order to have peace on earth and, 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 the, and the Eden on earth and the brotherhood of man, then, then, those, then those are justified and so on. Um, Blake, that's just complete nonsense. We killed over a million people in Iraq. That's absolute insane. I do the math on this, man. Let's just take these numbers here. We were there for what? Let's just say six years for the heart of it. Let's see. Um, okay, so let's take uh, one, one million civilian deaths uh, divided by six equals 166,666 people a year. Uh, divided by 365 equals... That we so according to you, we killed 456 Iraqi civilians every single day for six years, including Sundays, and this happened under the radar. There's no bodies to show or anything like that. There's no mass graves. There's no evidence of of us shooting or bombing those people. But we killed 456 people every single day for six years, because that's what you need to get to get to a million killed. That's kind of funny. You think that'd be they think that kind of thing would actually be a little more tough to, to hide, really, than that. Five hundred, yeah, five hundred, four hundred fifty-five. What difference does it make? Four hundred here, five hundred here, whatever. We killed five hundred people a day in order to massacre a million people in five years, and there's no evidence of that at all. But doesn't mean that you can't assert it. It doesn't mean you can't state it as the absolute truth and undoubtedly repeat it to all of your friends because you know better because you heard that on the internet. You know, I remember when I first brought this argument up, I said, the reason I can do that is because I can do the math. Now, you just did it. You did exactly what I was telling you. Exactly. We weren't there for six years. We were there for 15 years. Okay, so what you're saying is, what you're saying, first of all, we've been there for 15 years. There weren't any U.S. casualties after 2000 and whatever. So what you're saying is, no, we didn't kill a million over six years. We killed a million over 15 years. So one million people 
divided by 15 years equals 66,000 divided by 365 equals... You're right. You're right, Blake. You win. We only killed 182 people every single day for 15 years. 182 people every single day for 15 years, and you don't have a picture of any of it, but you can make a statement like that, and when you're challenged on it, your first response is to go to, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, we're still in Iraq. So we're still killing people, 200 people a day in Iraq, no doubt. No doubt. You know, really seriously, you are a remarkable guy because some things you say actually make a lot of sense, but you are capable of issuing the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. And the difference between you and me is I can add. I can also divide. Now, I'm not saying I can do it in my head, but I know how to work a calculator. I can divide. I can do math. I can do fundamental math, you see? So when you start actually doing math and you start saying you got to account for 200 civilians every single day for 15 years, and I say it didn't happen, and you say it did, you're the one that has to come up with the photos, not me. You're the one that has to come up with the mass graves, not me. You're the one that has to provide the evidence, not me, right? It's absolutely insane. You might as well say 10 million. Why don't you say 50 million? You can come up with any number you want to. You want to make us look bad? Why don't you say we killed 30 million people in 15 years in Iraq? Why don't you say that? You can prove that just as well as you can prove the 1 million, which means you can't. It's the same thing. Why settle for a million, Blake? I mean, really, it's actually kind of small potatoes if you think about it. If you want to just simply throw out a number that has no basis whatsoever, you could at least go for five or six million. I mean, come on, man. The Holocaust was six million people. That's documented. Surely we could do at least six million, you would think. Fifteen years, the Nazis did six million in two. We should be able to come close to that. I, I don't know why you're just chucking out one million. Honestly, I really don't get it. You could do much better than that. I don't want to prove the negative. Yeah, there you go. Okay. See, it's too easy. Um, that's why I want to have uh, Kevin Samuels. I want his, I want his sound effects, and I want his kill switch. No, I don't think he's a troll either. I, I, I know he's not a troll. I'm not saying he's a troll. He's had some very intelligent things to say. He's just, just says things, and. Some things are true and some things aren't. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think that's right. P7 2017 says it's a million, billion, trillion. I think that's probably closer to the real number. Um, all right. Yeah, see, this is the, see, this is the problem with the theory. Omso1103 says, I served two tours in Iraq so far. I don't seem to recall murdering 100 people plus per day, although my memory hasn't been getting better with age. And see, this is why I get angry. I don't just get angry because it's a, uh, just because it's a lie, right? The reason I lose my cool over this, Blake, is because of guys like this who've been over there serving their country, patriots who have performed under the kind of pressures that our military has never been correct, are never, ever, ever been under. There's, our military has never had to fight ever a war where you could not tell the civilians apart from the soldiers. And guys like this go over there and they and they leave behind them, their, their, they leave limbs back there and they leave eyeballs back there, they leave vision back there, they leave their sanity back there, and they come back here and get to listen to this kind of crap from you. 
because what you did was you just called this guy a mass murderer. You may not think you did, but that's exactly what you did. When you say that we killed a million civilians, you are accusing this man who's been over there serving his country and protecting those people. You've just occurred, you've just called him a mass murderer, you bastard. Who do you think you are? You think I'm going to sit still for that? I'm not going to sit still for that. How dare you? How dare you? Oh, my truth, Abe. Blake, here's the thing, dude. When you make a grand claim, you better have some grand evidence, okay? You can say there's a billion trillion people killed, and I say it's not a billion trillion. You better prove the billion trillion. That's not a question of my truth or your truth. You're the one making the claim. You're the one that's required to provide the truth. You can't provide the truth, so you lose. This isn't an opinion. You made a gigantic claim, and you can't back it up. So you lose. You lose. You're wrong, period. And I'm not going to let you get away with calling people like this murderers because these people have done things that require the kind of moral clarity and the kind of discipline and restraint that you cannot imagine and you will never, ever be able to imagine it. Never, ever, ever. These people are hundreds of times better than you. Hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. I just cannot... That's okay. That's all right. Now I know why Kevin Samuels dropped dead from a heart attack at age 52. I can actually understand it now. All right. It's 9.20. I think I'm done. Yeah, three hours. That's it. I'm done. Um, this show is made possible by the uh, members of BillWhittle.com. Uh, uh, Blake says, bring me on so that I can make you look foolish. You know, Blake, here's the thing. I don't have to actually get you on the phone to make you look foolish. You look foolish enough just in the comment section. You don't need any, you don't need to increase the baud rate. Even typing, you manage to look really foolish without, without being on the show. And I don't do call-ins, so start your own show. This show is made possible by the members at BillWhittle.com who make shows like this possible for your viewing pleasure. Stick around, Blake. I don't want you to go. It's just you, you, you're an interesting character. I'll give you that. Um, and because of them, uh, we're still here. So uh, until Monday, i come back with all kinds of cool things about uh, flight simulation, that kind of thing. Uh, and other things of that topic. Hopefully I'll have some kind of see, some kind of 3D rendering or at least something indicating that in that direction. But I will expect to see you guys on Monday night and, uh, and I'll expect to see you next Thursday as well. So thanks for joining us and we will see you later.